0: So you're talking you're talking to me? Well I'm the only one here.
1: I'm funny how I be funny like I'm clown here.
0: Oh my gosh. Hello everyone. Welcome. Before we begin what I consider to be one of the more um, special moments in this podcast and probably my podcasting um, career, if you want to call it that, I want to inform you, of course, about the Now Playing Network because um, it continues to put out terrific content, if I say so myself, from great new podcasters. Bill Ackerman's Supporting Characters features another great talk with J.A. Kurzweil. Jim Hankey did take a week off, deservedly so, for all of his hard work with Vinyl Emergency, but be sure to hear his talk with um, Ryan Arnold of WXRT, which is um, another personal favorite radio station of mine from my um, adolescence and onward, as well as Eric Childress's latest in which he runs down his summer box office predictions over... Um, at Movie Madness. So, yeah, you got, a, you got some great episodes to listen to other than this one. Now, I also had the immense pleasure of talking with actor-director Keith Gordon as a bonus episode, so if you haven't heard that, please go back and give it a listen. It's one of my prouder moments, my favorite interviews. He tells great stories about working on all of his films, and we briefly touch upon his early start with films like Christine, which you probably... Um, most remember him from uh, as well as uh, playing Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School. He could not have been a nicer guest. He's worked with some of Hollywood's m- most you know, m- notable actors like Nick Nolte, for an example. And speaking of some of the best, gotta say this up front, that this episode you're about to hear features... Whom I consider to be the best talk show radio host in Chicago working today. Maybe I'm a little biased, but it's it's just um, it's something I've been hoping would happen at some point in this long run of the podcast. Well, five years, you know, give or take. Um, but not only is it an honor to have Nick DiGiulio on this podcast. You know, I mean, I've appeared on his show, but to have him on my show is just kind of like, uh, you know, overwhelming, but in the best way possible, but really to finally talk about one of my favorite directors of all time that for some reason just kept putting off for way too long here is just, it's just something, you know, that I'm never going to forget, nor should you hopefully, <laughs> but. You know, I've mentioned so many times at this point that Nick is responsible for a lot that I also briefly touch upon in the intro to our conversation. But I think back to a screening of The Royal Tenenbaums, which I had seen about two months after my dad passed away suddenly from kidney cancer. And so that ending of Royal Tenenbaums to this day, you know, still affects me on a deep, deep level. And the tears just didn't stop uh, the first time I saw it. And I look over to a row or two in front of me, and there's Nick DiGiulio wiping away tears, too. Um, I actually didn't know he was there at the time, but on the way out, we both said that, well, that's our favorite film of the year right there. Um, Nick encouraged me to go to the Chicago Film Critics Awards, where I met Roger Ebert for the first time, ran into Spielberg, of all people, on the way um, to the restroom, Heard Kathy Bates give a very memorable speech for Primary Colors. The list goes on and on and on. I could probably do an entire episode about just some of the things Nick is responsible for in my lifetime in terms of some of the experiences I've had, my um, brief stint as a film critic for eFilmCritic.com. So Nick helped spark um, my love of film at a very impressionable age, which I I talk about. But um, yeah, I mean, for for him to have me in the WGN studios back in 2002 and then a couple years to follow as a guest. Also just as a regular contributor via telephone to his movie review segment for many years. It's been one of the great highlights of my life. I've always wanted to share my passions and you know, by starting out with his support very early on, it it has essentially led to this podcast. So you can thank him if you uh, if you choose to, but I mean, good Lord, you can thank my dad, you can thank Roy Leonard, you can thank Roger Ebert, and to some extent, Lester Bangs. Yeah, let's just give a moment of thanks to all those individuals for really impacting my life in ways that have allowed me to grow as a person, um, as a lover of both film and music, and the arts in general. So yeah, um, not to overstate anything, but you know, also... Uh, we have to briefly mention here, I'm saying we, I don't know why, but I should mention that Nick and I may have been a bit overzealous in thinking we could cover all of Scorsese's films in two hours or so. Yeah. We reach a certain point around, I think it was after hours where we realize that time is running out since, you know, Nick has a busy schedule. He was, you know, getting ready to host his own show, of course. And there's just way too much left to say about some of Scorsese's latter-day films. So we made it up to about Goodfellas for this episode and decided that part two is going to come sooner than later, folks. In fact, um, we're going to record the sequel episode much more quickly than sequel episodes have come in the past. We're going to continue this conversation you're about to hear in about a month. So expect this episode conversation to continue and I truly hope you enjoy Nick DiGiulio as a guest because he means a lot to me and to sit in the WGN studio recording this episode felt very humbling and um, doing that will motivate me to continue no doubt so thank you all for downloading this episode please do send your emails to directors club podcast at com about this episode or any episodes past present future And of course, check out Nick's show over at WGNRadio.com from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. Monday through Friday. Download any number of his podcasts. Visit thenowplayingnetwork.net as well. And now, Nick DiGiulio and I embark on part one of our long overdue discussion on the one and only, one of our greats, the legendary Martin Scorsese. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Director's Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, sitting live in a very special radio station studio that means so much to me. I've mentioned WGN a number of times on the podcast, and I'd be remiss in not saying something that I think most of the listeners know by now. Um, But both Roy Leonard and today's guest is partially responsible for my love of movies. In 1990, both of them recommended a movie that changed my life, and that was Pump Up the Volume. And it was a movie about a depressed teenager, which I kind of was at the time, and seeing that movie helped me in so many ways. It was like therapy, and it made me realize that movies were more than just entertainment. It is with great pleasure that I welcome to the show to cover one of the greatest directors of all time, none other than WGN's very own...
1: Nick DeGulio. Hey, Jim. Hey, man. Thanks uh, thanks for having me on. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks. I really. Am. I appreciate
0: it, man. You know, I, I think it was back in 1989 when I first heard you on Stephen Johnny's show. Um, in fact, I think my dad might have even recorded the segment on tape <laughs> so I could listen to it back listen back to it tape. later. Yeah. Remember those days? Yeah, cassette tape, right. Um, <laughs> I think you t- you had do the right thing. Henry, Casualties of War, all in your best of for 89.
1: Casualties of War, if I remember correctly, was number one. Yeah.
0: yeah. I, I, I've, that was surprising. <laughs> but, uh, no, surprising it's a good, to a lot of people. No, it's a good choice. It's a <laughs> real good choice. Um, I mean, uh, listening to you all these years, there are movies I might not have ever seen if it wasn't for your recommendation, and I can't thank you enough, and especially early on, like... Uh, at a seminal age, a lot of the movies I saw, b- based on your recommendation, sort of informed my taste.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. No, that means a lot, and when I, I love it when I hear that. I like one of the things I love about my job is that I can turn people on to to movies that would normally they would miss. I remember one of the first movies that I years and years ago that I, that I really went out of my way to champion was um, uh, the Beast Kevin yeah. Reynolds uh, movie, right. which was released I- in in one theater. I think it, I think it was just at the Webster, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of went nuts and was on a personal crusade to make sure that people saw that movie. Of course, it didn't make a dime, but <laughs> but it's a great movie. And just recently, the one that I that I've been kind of pushing, uh, well, now because you have access to every everything, you can watch movies, you can stream them, all that stuff. I, I was pushing this movie called The Invitation, which I know that you. Oh yeah, you yeah. saw before I did, right. and you you reviewed it on my show um, when you were filling in for our buddy Colin and. Gave it a good review and then Mm -hmm. I watched it the next week, um, and it was phenomenal. And that's, that's the one that I've, it's one of my favorite films of the year. It's the one I've been, one I've been pushing on people.
0: Yeah. We've had, we've had a nice sort of triple dose of, uh, quality indie films with Green Room, Sing Street, and The Invitation. Yeah. Like pretty much all all. three terrific movies. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. So it's, it's, it's been a pretty good year to,
1: yeah. uh, No, it's been, it's been a real good year so far, actually. You know, we're only into early May, um, at this recording. Um, But, yeah, no, it's a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff to look forward to,
0: too. Absolutely. But we are here to talk about a director that might be the most anticipated to date, other than maybe Stanley Kubrick. I mean, out of all the emails where people are just like, you know, they'll send to the show saying, when are you going to cover this director? Mm -hmm. I would say Kubrick... Scorsese, of course, and Jim Jarmusch are like the top three. Yeah, so Jarmusch really haven't done. I, I don't know. Wow, no, no, Later no, no. no. This year. Later you know, it's
1: funny because you you've asked me to do this podcast many times, and I've been yeah. you know I've been a, a, a dick about it by not by not yeah, doing busy it guy. sooner sooner enough. But I remember when because you covered Paul Thomas Anderson, which obviously people know my taste. My favorite movie of all time is Magnolia, so um, which which has a lot of Scorsese influence in it, indeed. Um, but. Um, I remember you asked me, went to a screening of uh, uh, Interstellar in 70 millimeter. And I and I said, well, have you done Scorsese yet? And you said, no. And my mind was blown. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, let's do Scorsese. Yeah.
0: And, uh, you know, Brian Tallarico felt that same way when we did the Lumet episode. And I told him we haven't done Hitchcock yet. And he's like,
1: what? Yeah. Well,
0: there's a lot of great directors, man. I know. You know, there's I know, a lot. Well, we do sequel episodes, too. I mean, when you can't cover everything, like even right. a, even a director like John Carpenter, right. we had to do two parts for right. because of his yeah. expansive filmography and just there's a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah. Well, um, might, this might end up being a two-part. Yes.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so, there's so much to cover because, like, yeah. we're not even covering his documentaries, like The Last Waltz. You mm. know, I mean, there's just... He's done so much amazing Yeah, work.
1: Italian-American, which is a really wonderful movie. Yeah. Um, you know, in his TV stuff, I mean, he just, you know, he, he directed the pilot for Vinyl, which I thought was great. Yeah. The,
0: the, I haven't seen the whole show. I, yeah. just, I haven't. That show
1: falls apart. It, but, trust yeah, me. Mm-hmm. It falls apart. It's a bummer. Yeah.
0: But, I mean, I got to see the Bob Dylan documentary he did, the George Harrison documentary he yeah. did. I mean, there's and it's funny because The Stones yeah uh, that too yeah Yeah. Um, I mean the next director is Spike Lee that I'm doing with my old former co-host Patrick and again that's another director where so many documentaries so much uh, different work that a wide spectrum
1: of stuff to cover that it's probably going to have to be another guy that's deeply influenced by the man (laughs) we're talking about
0: indeed dearly beloved we are gathered here today to celebrate two lives We're going to miss you, Prince. And I know you weren't a fan of these parody songs, but I'm here to talk about a director, too, that changed cinema forever. You know what I'm talking about. He made movies full of characters so flawed, yet so relatable. And the man behind the camera, well, he's a genius. Just like you, Prince. Just Just like you. Good fellas, such a masterpiece Take a look at his film, It's clear to see Like taxi driver, king of comedy De Niro at his best Are you talking to me? Do I amuse you?
2: How am I funny? Steady cam shots, fast and slow motion, great soundtrack One of okay. the best
0: Scorsese A raging book Stories of redemption
2: Unforgettable
1: My
0: god Yeah um so I usually ask the guest what is your first experience watching a Scorsese movie <laughs> in the theater
1: <laughs> All right as you as you know because you're a regular listener you know that my my father would take me to see movies uh, that were Horribly inappropriate for my age. Right. He took me to see The Exorcist in the theater when I was eight. <laughs> um, so uh, he, well, okay, my first Scorsese movie was Taxi Driver, um, and I was 11. 11. Uh, it came out in 76. I think it came out early 76, so maybe I was 10. And I was about, because in 76 I turned 11, but that would have been in July. So I think it was, I think I was 10. Mm-hmm. I saw it at the Patio Theater on Irving Park in, uh, austin and my, oh, it's uh, still there to this uh, day. oddly enough my parents live right around the corner from there now <laughs> and uh he took me to see taxi driver and i uh you know obviously my mind was blown um, of course you know I, I couldn't believe it i um i just remember it f- completely freaking me out um and i you know at the, at the t- of course i didn't get it you know you're 10 years old and you don't understand what the movie is really about but, you know, when you're 10 years old and the movie ends with like this, you know, and you're a horror film fanatic and you like gore, yeah. when you have the final five minutes of the movie is just this, you know, just mayhem with fingers being blown off. Yeah. And, uh, I just remember like completely, but, but the movie really freaked me out. I just remember being in the theater and being like really freaked out. Um, I, And I think ultimately it came down to being forced to essentially spend two hours in the mind of somebody who's really, really screwed up. Right. And
0: It's one of the uh, most subjective movies ever made where it's like you're just literally in that guy's point of view pretty much the whole time.
1: Yeah, uncomfortably. Yeah. You know, like to the point where it's like, I don't know if I want to be here anymore. <laughs> right. And um, so, you know, as you know, like, but my, my first experience was that. It was the patio theater, uh, beautiful theater, and that's, like you said, still around. And, uh, you know, as a t- as a 10-year-old watching... Taxi Driver. And of course, you know, like, I would go to school and go, oh, man, I saw this movie called Taxi Driver, and my friends are like, what is that? You know, because they had just saw, like, yeah. you know, Gumball Rally or something. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, or No Deposit, No Return from Disney. They would go see that kind of stuff, and I'm sitting in the theater. The Cat from Outer Space. Watched. Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. They'd be watching Dean Jones movies, and I'm watching, you know, Harvey Keitel getting shot. <laughs> and um uh, so... Anyway, uh, yeah, so that was my very first experience, and it was a big one, you know. And and but I didn't know at that point; I didn't know who Scorsese was or sure. any of that stuff. Um, you know, like me recognizing directors and what directors do didn't happen for a few years. Right. But at that point, it was a very vivid, obviously a very very vivid memory, and one that stayed with me forever. So
0: you're gonna laugh, but my first experience, and it's actually interesting because it kind of correlates to what. Um, Eric brought up at your Risky Business screening with pay-per-view and dads um, ordering specific movies to show their sons at a, probably a too young of an age.
1: That, I found that to be very interesting that yeah. the, there were stories – because I was asking people at my screening of Risky Business uh, – their first experience, and all the guys were like eight, and and <laughs> yes. almost all of the stories that the guys had about their first viewing of risky business involved their dads, yeah. which I just thought was really. My odd. dad rented it for
0: me. I yeah. mean, and he, you know, he did that with Die Hard. He did that with a lot of movies that maybe my mom would have been very upset about. Sure. But um, at the same time, like. He ordered Cape Fear. And I know it's like, (laughs) it's your least favorite. It is my least favorite. And it's definitely one of my least favorites. Yeah. Um, Well, you got to start somewhere, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean,. It certainly left an indelible impression with De Niro in general. But I actually I think that my first De Niro movie ever was Midnight Run, and I, I associated him with a as a comedic actor at first.
1: Cool because like, he's hilarious in Midnight. Oh
0: Night yeah, Red. yeah. He, him and Groden. That's funny that that's chemistry.
1: that's the route that you took. Yeah, it's that's weird. like I started with Midnight Run. <laughs> yeah, uh, but no. So Cape Fear was the first one that you. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean. As a kid you can't get over like just how freaky De Niro is, even if he's essentially playing like a manic cartoon character yeah. or a you know, Freddy Krueger kind of a character yeah, by yeah. the end. You know, it does turn into like a you know, a typical sort of a slasher by the end. And it's it, it I mean, we're gonna get to that one, but I mean overall it's it's one that doesn't hold up on repeat viewings. Like I've seen it a couple of times and I just kinda go,
1: eh. I've seen it twice. Yeah. Which is unusual for Scorsese because most Scorsese right. movies I've seen more than more than twice. I just um, yeah, we'll get to that one, but I right. hate that movie. But we'll get we'll get to that one. We're gonna start
0: all the way at the beginning. I mean, there's only two that I've still have not seen in uh, Boxcar Bertha and New York, New York are the two that I have not seen yet, but I will see it at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can cover those very briefly, but the first one that um, I actually remember renting when I worked at a video store in Northwest Indiana was Who's That Knocking at My Door? Yeah. And I was so, like, this. that was another sort of formative time. Obviously, if, you, you, if you're a movie freak and you work at a video store, it's just like, you know, a kid in a candy store. And free rentals galore. So, I mean, I'm renting everything. I'm renting Godard. I'm renting just obscure films or exploitation or kung fu. Um, and I had specifically ordered for the store because I think it came out on VHS at the time. Who's that knocking at my door? And wow. Yeah. I... I was so taken aback by this, and I had always associated the song "The End" by the Doors with, of course, the opening of Apocalypse Now. Mm -hmm. And here, Scorsese uses it for this wild fever dream fantasy sequence. So, I mean, it's—I know that it wasn't really championed early on, except by Ebert when it played here at the Chicago International Film Festival.
1: Yeah, I—you know—when I had first seen when I when I when I saw Taxi Driver, um, I was aware of Mean Streets. Sure. Um, I hadn't seen Mean Streets yet. Tax Driver was the first one, but I, I was aware of Mean Streets because you mentioned Roger. Mm-hmm. And Roger and Gene really championed Mean Streets. Yeah. And I used to watch their show on Channel 11 you know, all the mm-hmm. time. And I remember them going out of their way and doing like a special, here are great movies that no one knows about episode. And Mean Streets was one of them. Um, and then later, when I finally got around to seeing Mean Streets, I saw Mean Streets um, at uh i saw it in the theater i want to say it was the music box and it was a like a revival and and that led me to who's that knocking at my door which i saw at facets Um, wow! uh, facets multimedia um which was a great place still is a great place still is a great place but but back then it was a great place uh to catch up on older films because they would show you know they would get the prints of them and show them that's how i caught up when i when i first became obsessed with carpenter and i saw halloween um about two months after Halloween came out, Facets showed Dark Star. They showed Assault on Precinct 13. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> and I went to, you know, when my father took me to both of them, and that's, you know, when my obsession started. So I saw Who's That knocking at my door at the at Facets. Um, uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned – I mean, this will pop up a lot as we talked about Scorsese oh, yeah. because it's his crazy. music – the yeah. music, the, his use of music, nobody really uses music – the way that Scorsese does. I mean, you know, um, I mean, he I, was
0: inspired by Kenneth Anger, The Scorpio Rising, that short film. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, like just the use of um, old pop songs in kind of an ironic way.
1: Oh, absolutely, he especially just, in this, it, especially it. in this and Mean Streets. Yeah, the, uh, uh, because there are a lot of sort of upbeat songs in both of them. Right, and neither of those, especially Who's That Knocking at My Door, are not the happiest of, <laughs> of films. And you know, um, but his use of music is great. It's obviously inspired. You know everybody, including Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, um, you know if you look at Boogie Nights, especially. Oh, geez, yeah. But yeah, but who's that knocking at my door? I, I, um, that was like the 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 movie that, and you know, coupled with Mean Streets, w- was the movie that really brought Keitel to my sure. attention. And I didn't even realize, uh, honest to God, for for a wh- for a while after I'd seen <laughs> who that knocking at my door, and I'd seen Mean Streets, I didn't even realize he was the same guy who'd played the pimp. In taxi driver, because it's oh, such yeah, a different, yeah. it's such a different, different role. role. Right. You know, he plays sport and taxi driver, and it's like that's <laughs> nothing like the other two guys at, at, at that point that mm-hmm. he had played for Scorsese. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, the the themes of, of uh, who's that knocking at my door in Mean Streets are, are similar. Yeah. Um and you know, I mean it's more
0: raw yeah. and kind of unpolished but in, in a way that I find interesting. Yeah, Regardless, especially as a debut film, you sort of see where those themes
1: derive from and I yeah, mean you know, this is a guy who who was going to go into the priesthood. This is a yeah. guy who who uh was asthmatic and who was stuck in the house all the time and mm-hmm. would observe things in the streets. He grew up in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Um and all of that all of that. I mean, his movies are, especially his first few, are remarkably personal. Especially Mean Streets. Especially Who's That Knocking at My Door? Yeah. Because he had a lot of issues. He had a lot of issues with, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. A lot of issues in terms of like uh, spiritualism, right. and uh, major issues with women, um, <laughs> yeah, which which shows up a lot in his movies. Right. Uh, uh, you know, the whole Madonna horror complex is a is a major thing in all of his movies. Right. Um. So, but yeah, yeah but it,
0: has a, it has a nice like, little meet cute kind of a sequence at the, uh, at the train station, if I recall. Mm-hmm. And like he puts the camera in really odd angles for no reason, but I still find it so unconventional and interesting. It has, the,
1: it has the feel, you know, when you watch who's that knocking at my door. I mean, obviously, he hadn't found his, his full voice or footage sure. or, 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 you know, his, his, his foot uh, yet um, completely. Um and it it it's it's a terrific movie. It feels like a student movie though. Yeah. It feels like I I'm gonna do this because I'm expected to do this, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna cut this way because it would be avant garde to cut this right. way. Um, I and, just saw uh, breathless. And- and, yes, I mean <laughs> he's completely influenced by European cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 not really finding his footing yet. Right. Uh, uh it's it's kind of fascinating to watch now, oh, sure. knowing what an accomplished. You know an important filmmaker he went out he right. would go on to become, but this is a movie that clearly was a you know film student late sixties, boom, yeah, black and white, and, and just
0: throws in a weird fantasy sequence in the middle of it that's sort of just it's like intercut in this strange way that i it's like it doesn't belong, but I still love it, yeah, you know, and yeah. i I think just Scorsese is constantly doing things in movies that nobody else had ever done before mm-hmm. that i just am so drawn to like even in taxi driver just like you know zooming in on alka-seltzer like his attention to detail yeah. is just impeccable yeah. in everything
1: well i mean it's it's also sometimes you know like it, if for who's that knocking at my door uh like i said a lot of it didn't seem as organic mm-hmm. as as yeah. it would become right uh, you know he was still like in my opinion he was still a student then it was fun to watch him mm-hmm. mess around with the with the you know, the conventions of filmmaking and do it in a way that we've clearly influenced by, you know, European cinema and so forth. Um, But he was able to take, you know, you mentioned the the Alka-Seltzer scene um, in Taxi Driver, Um, but he was able to have those little weird asides, mainly in in terms of Taxi Driver, because of you're seeing it through the eyes of Travis. Sure. Um, and Travis would sit there and look right. at an Alka Seltzer, mm-hmm. you know, at a glass of Alka Seltzer for fifteen minutes. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, but but you know, again, the the, vid- the visual flourishes and stuff and who's that knocking at my door are uh, are more charming than they are than they than they mm-hmm. actually you know propel the story exactly. along. But it's, it's it's a I mean it's a wonderful film.
0: It is. It's it's messy, but in in a good way. I think. Yeah. You know. And I've yet. To, I mean, I know at the time after the success of this and Ebert sort of championed it. um, he became friends with both Cassavetes and Roger Corman, which led to him making Boxcar Bertha. Right. And I think even uh, Cassavetes did not have anything nice to say about Boxcar
1: well, Bertha. I mean, I'm sure you know the story. Yeah. But it's one of my favorite quotes ever. Uh, <laughs> like that he had that Boxcar Bertha, which you've not seen. Not yet. Um, it's not great. It, uh, you know, um, that's what I've heard, and I mean, that's why I put it off. But I mean, it's I'm still it's, curious. It's definitely, that. you know, you got to see it. And there's a there's a crucifixion sequence in it, um, in Boxcar Bertha. Um, in a Scorsese. Movie? The, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but the the crucifixion sequence in Boxcar Bertha, you know, predates obviously predates Last Temptation by many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the way it's cut and the way it's shot, it's very similar to what he would do you know some 25 30 years later when yeah. he made uh, last temptation and um but a lot of the themes are there you know especially boxcar bertha is uh, the the whole movie is the, is the uh is the madonna horror thing that's what the whole movie is yeah. about so he works for uh, uh, for Corman. he does boxcar bertha and uh i don't you, you can you can i'm going to paraphrase you. maybe you know the exact quote but Cassavetti saw it they had like the op- they had like the the premiere of it mm-hmm. and they went and uh and he said and he said something to the effect of uh well congratulations, you know, you know, 'cause it was like it was a big celebratory thing because it was a you know you know, he worked for he worked for Corman, he gets like a movie premiere and everything, and then Cassavetes just comes up to him and goes, Congratulations, you just spent uh, a year and a half of your life making a piece of shit. Right.
0: That's exactly it. And that. that's <laughs> that and, and then
1: I just I always remembered that quote. <laughs> and I think, you know, I obviously Cassavetes was being a little harsh. A little bit, yeah, um, I do think so. But he it did inspire Scorsese to step
0: things up and go back to something more personal.
1: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And Boxcar Bertha's it's an interesting it's an interesting movie to look at. Barbara Hershey's great in it. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um,
0: is David Carradine? David Carradine yeah. is really good in it too. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you can see, like you know, when you watch any of the early uh, stuff that Scorsese did, you can see the little nuggets of things that are going to come out later. Sure. And uh, that are going to be great later. Uh, it's 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 just a, it's a very odd film, and especially if you look at the rest of his filmography, it just kind of stands out. And and as good as some of it, as good as some of it is, it's, it is, a, it, it is a mess. And it ultimately, you know, it's just a, it's a Roger, C- it's a Roger <laughs> Corman movie. Uh, it was more artful than most Roger Corman produced movies. Cause Roger Corman as a director, I think is pretty great, but, um, yeah, you that's know.
0: another one on the docket for later this year. That yeah, no, like, he, he, wants to cover. <laughs> you know, C-
1: Corman man and Corman influenced Scorsese a lot in terms sure. of, uh, of, of style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, obviously the business of movies, you know, yeah. um, and I'm, you know, when you do Corman, you're going to talk about clearly, you'll talk about the unbelievable list of filmmakers that he's responsible for discovering. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Including <laughs> Scorsese. Yeah. Dante. Uh, Demi. Right. You know, uh, James Cameron mm-hmm. and so many filmmakers went through the Corman school. Sure. Um, and one of them being Scorsese. But it was it was an important movie for him to do.
0: Yeah, Stepping Stone of yeah. sorts. Yeah, and, sure. I
1: mean, and the next one he did Out of the Gate was Taxi Driver. And then it was just kind of, from that point, the trajectory was mm-hmm. set. Uh, mean Streets was next, was Oh, I'm sorry, it? yeah, Mean Streets yeah. was next. Sorry, what the hell's wrong with me?
0: Um, phenomenal in every way. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like a 70s gangster film mixed with a film noir, but it's also part musical in a way, the way he uses music. Um, I mean, he he went out of his way not to use... Like a traditional score, because he wanted to capture on a very personal level what it's like to be in that part of New York, hanging out with these people, Mm -hmm. and it was always a jukebox was playing somewhere, Mm -hmm. and that's why all these songs are peppered throughout this film.
1: Well, and it's the the use of of music in Mean Streets is just kind of crazy. Uh, uh, It has almost wall to wall. It is. It is. And you know, you you think back to 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 that to that time in terms of getting the rights to those songs. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if the budget for the entire movie, because that's a very low-budget movie, I mean, <laughs> yeah. half the budget for the movie had to be the music cues. I would think so. Um, You're
0: using the stones and...
1: Yeah, tons, or- of, tons of stuff. And it also yeah. does have uh, the best uh, visualization of being drunk, uh, yeah. perhaps in film history. Is that when Keitel's drunk? Keitel is loaded, and he's in the bar, Yeah, and the camera's on a is attached to How him. I always associate that with Spike
0: Lee as like the being the first guy to do it? But clearly, no it's, yeah. it's, it was
1: it was Scorsese. Yeah. And uh, if I remember Rubber Biscuit is playing and and yeah. uh, he's completely shit-faced and he's walking through the bar and the camera right. it's a it's a the camera's pointed at him. It's a fisheye lens, if I remember correctly, and it's mounted like on a harness mm-hmm. in front of him as he mm-hmm. walks through the bar and people are buying him drinks, throwing drinks in his face. Yeah. And it is one of the best visual representations without words. Of being drunk that I that I've ever seen. I would I would concur with that completely.
0: And yeah. the like the array of stylistic devi- like devices and choices he picked up sort of from Godard: the jump cuts, the abrupt cuts, the long takes, the shaky handheld camera shots. He def- it definitely gives it this raw, realistic, sort of documentary feel. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things are just sort of bathed in different lighting and just really interesting uh, flourishes. That we sort of come to identify as Scorsese esque in a way, yeah, and-
1: but that movie, Mean Streets, is, is uh, on my list of I've, I made a list, right? Uh, and Mean Streets is third on my list of of, of all time in, in Scorsese films. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movie that I go back to constantly. the The, the central relationship um, between De Niro, between uh, Keitel and De Niro in that movie I find endlessly fascinating yeah um very complex for it, real 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 complex and I think the character that that Kaitel plays um is is interesting too. these these struggles that he has between you know wanting to atone for his sins it's very very personal in terms of what Scorsese went through as well sure and the whole Madonna whore thing is huge in it as well um you know it's it's funny because you know, like you know Scorsese's made a lot of gangster movies and he's made a lot of like uh movies of people who are on the edge and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But there's always a sense of there's always a sense of uh, redemption in 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 a lot of yeah, his Yeah, there's
0: movies. a desire for atonement yeah. for those sins. Yeah.
1: Um yeah, that's that's uh, you know, atonement for sins is like probably the most used yeah. theme that he has in any of his movies. But there's this the 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 stuff that goes on between Johnny Johnny Boy and, and Charlie in that movie, I just find endlessly fascinating and and um the dynamic between the two of them, and especially because you know, a lot of the film was improvised, uh it has a very, very natural feel to yeah. it. When um talking about
0: organic, man. This is a yeah. Figure.
1: Well, you know, the, the although the movie is very stylistically you know put together, it's mm-hmm. shot really well. A lot of steady cam stuff. Great um,
0: use of lighting, Yep.
1: Red, <laughs> especially. Yep. yep. And
0: De Niro's introduction in the bar like that. It's <laughs> just, oh my
1: god. Yeah, absolutely, and it predates the the whole Goodfellas entering the mm-hmm. bar entrance which is very very similar yeah. to I'm going to get the papers get the papers that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But um the 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 main focus between these two guys is a uh, is the kind of character relationship that has inspired so many people especially as we mentioned um uh Spike Lee because Mo Better Blues is essentially the same movie as mean streets except it's like in the world of jazz because he Denzel Washington's character is constantly saving Spike Lee's character and Mm -hmm. saving his ass and gets his ass kicked for it gets in trouble for it and you know and that's exactly what keeps happening to Keitel in this movie Mm -hmm. um, to the point where you know like he gets you know like he gets a shot at the end of the film and and so this this dedication that this character has to to Robert De Niro's character is maddening. Like you're like, why are you, what why are you trying to save this guy? This guy's mm-hmm. a dick, and yeah. and why are you friends with this guy? Yeah,
0: I mean, I always thought of to some degree like the relationship between Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church
1: and it's sideways very much it's, so. It's like yeah. a love hate friendship. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Yeah. I mean, it's a, that's a very good. That's exactly what it is, man. Uh, uh, <laughs> When you think about it, it's like, why would Paul Giamatti defend this guy? He's a <laughs> yeah, dick, too. And, right. um, but I just find there are moments in in Mean Streets uh, that just, uh, you know, that uh, astound me. Uh, 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 one of my favorite moments in the movie is when these idiots uh, come up on the street. I, 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 I want to remember if if one of the young actors is anybody. But then when they come up and they ask – it's. Uh, uh, Richard Romanus and all the guys are out mm-hmm. on the street, and they come up and they want fireworks. Right. <laughs> they, and they want to buy fireworks from these guys. Mm-hmm. And so Romanus is like, yeah, 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 you just give me your money. <laughs> and they, it, we'll go get you fireworks. We'll meet you back here. Yeah. So they take their money. These two dorks. They take their money. They're gonna go. Yeah, we'll go get you some fireworks. Yeah. So they get money off of these guys, and then they go pick up Keitel, and they go see the Searchers. <laughs> right. It's just one of my favorite. <laughs> <my> one <favorite laughs> of in the movies. Like, what happened? Yeah. You, what do you? What do you? What do you got here? Yeah, we just took some money from these guys. You want to go to the movies? Let's go to the movies. <laughs> and next nice thing you know, they're watching the Searchers. Um, yeah, very appropriate. Yeah. One yeah. of his favorites, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Which taxi driver is essentially the Searchers? Yeah. But,
0: but I, I used to associate <clears throat> uh, "Pledging My Love" by Johnny Ace with uh, Christine. <laughs> yeah. But I love its use here and fight like the the immediacy of the fights in this is just uh, well, so
1: visceral. <laughs> the scene in the pool, I mean, the scene in the pool hall is just yeah. uh, amazing. Amazing use of Steadicam oh, yeah. uh, at a time when nobody was using Steadicam, mm-hmm. and how fluid that scene is and the energy of it. Just the way you know uh, uh, the performance, especially De Niro when he's on top of the pool table with the pool cue, swinging it back and forth. Uh, and George Mamoli is a guy uh, who. He plays the guy who runs. He's This guy's a fucking mook. <laughs> right. That guy. Okay. It's like, yeah. You're a mook, the, the big heavy guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. George Momoli's been in a ton of stuff. He was in Blue Collar. In Blue Collar, oh. he's the guy. You remember Blue Collar? Yeah. He yeah. was the guy in Blue Collar who keeps getting ripped off by the coffee machine and then finally puts the <laughs> forklift through it. <laughs> right. That's George Momoli. And that guy, uh, oh
0: man. He was yeah. in a
1: ton of stuff in the 70s. Mm-hmm. He was one of those, you know, he's a heavy set guy, had a very distinctive look. And he was in a shit ton of movies in the seventies, and um, always very distinct. He was one of those guys who, when he showed up, you, you immediately go, oh, "This guy's great." Uh, he was in a. I mean, I'm trying to remember. He was in. He was in. Um, uh, he's in. Well, he's in a ton of. Uh, he's in Scorsese's movies. He's in uh, Rocky. Mm-hmm. He's in um, Phantom of Paradise. Oh um, wow! And you haven't seen New York, yeah. New York, but he's in that too. He, he's one of those seventies guys who showed up in everything. Um, so anyway, that, he, he just kills me in that scene mm-hmm. too. Like, and then they, after they beat the shit out of each other, they're all like, hey, let's, let's, let's have a drink <laughs> and, uh, you know, the cops come and, and all, but there, it, the, one of the things that I, one of the other things that I love about Mean Streets is that is there is a sense of, um, of joy in the relationships with these guys. Sure. Now, as much Even of a, when they're
0: beating the crap out of each exactly. other. Exactly. <laughs> now,
1: as, as much as Johnny boy is a destructive and really, you know, selfish and asshole character, um, when they're all together, when all the guys are together, you know, there's, it's it's a lot of fun to watch. It's sure. one of the reasons why I like that scene when they, they go it's see the another searchers. another good
0: guys hanging out kind of movie. There's exactly. a lot of camaraderie yeah, going on. Yeah, exactly.
1: There. But, you know, no, that was a, that was one of those movies that, you know, with Mean Streets, that was one of the first times that I remember uh, seeing a movie on Siskel and Ebert's show and not knowing what it was and being... You know, you mentioned sure. earlier how sometimes... People turn you on to movies that you may not have ever heard of. That was definitely the case. Siskel and Ebert were responsible for me oh, finding man. out what Mean Streets was.
0: Yeah, I mean, Scorsese had such the nicest things to say about Roger. I mean, yeah. that's just that's one of my. Well, they had a great. Things. They had a great. They
1: had a great relationship. Yeah, um, they really did. You Lots can see of that. interviews. So oh, yeah. many interviews. Yeah, you can see it in, in, li- in life itself. I mean, you yeah, can, you can see it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but no, that was a you know. Ebert was one of the first guys to really champion him. Like you mentioned, who's that uh, knocking at my door? Uh, and and Mean Streets, you know, before anybody knew who this sure. guy was. Yeah. Um, so,
0: but it's just it's so influential. You can tell, like, just the, the use of music, everything about it is just to this day filmmakers are there's replicating
1: a, it. There's a real stunning scene in the movie uh, where uh, Teresa Salata plays Harvey Keitel's girlfriend in it, and she's epileptic. Right. Um Oof. and they and they you know yeah. and if, you know the stairwell scene th- yeah yeah and it's it's an it's an astonishing scene because like she's she's having an epileptic attack and he leaves her yeah like Kaitel leaves her at that point and it's just this moment every time I see the movie I'm
0: like because you, you you sympathize with him for the most part and yeah then he does something like that and you're but just, like
1: like he's so dedicated to saving this Johnny boy guy and in turn yeah. saving himself or atoning for his sins that he leaves his epileptic girlfriend. Having a fit, uh, having a seizure in a hallway to go mm-hmm. chase after Johnny Boy, uh, and that says enormous amounts about about uh, about the relationship between the two of these yeah. guys, and it's a pretty stunning moment in the film. Um, but and then you know like a lot of the stuff that was improvised in the movie some of my favorite stuff is where there where he takes where where uh, De Niro comes in the bar flashing money even though he owes everybody around town money. Mm-hmm. And he comes into the bar And he's like, Hey get this guy A drink And he's You know You like my hat And all this other stuff And so Keitel tells him To come in the back And they go in the back And they have this conversation About You know why, why you Why are you guy, doing this And yeah. you got money And then they start talking About uh, Characters Like you, you know this guy And you know that guy <laughs> And De Niro screws up And uh, like Keitel says he, I can't remember the exact name of the guy that he says, but he says a character's name. De Niro like fucks up the improv, and says something else, and then Harvey Keitel has to double back and mention that it's the same guy. Oh right, they, right, it's the same guy, even though it's not. It was two separate characters, yeah. but then suddenly it becomes the same guy. That was all improvised. Mm-hmm. That whole thing was improvised, and there's a, there's some great behind the scene footage uh, of that uh, on I should, the yeah, uh, I should see that uh, on the DVD if I'm not mistaken of them improvising mm-hmm. that, and so much of it was you know and like and all of course not all of them at this point i don't think he lets everybody improvise but but back in those days you know uh, some some major sequences in the movie were just improvised and he was one of the one of the first directors to really embrace that yeah and and one of the first directors to let his actors contribute more than just stand there and say your line mm-hmm. uh, and like really contribute creatively to the to the to the process of making the movie and to the point where you know these guys you know i would imagine in a different world, they would fight for writing credits. Yeah. Uh, because- well, he, he, he was okay with
0: continuity errors and things that, I mean, I, I think it was just because he was so invested in the emotional truth of the scene Yeah, that even if there was like, okay, you know, Polly's cigar is, I mean, that's one of the more famous continuity errors right. um, in Goodfellas or even Maurice's phone disappears from his hand at one point. Right. But he, if the take was good enough it didn't matter even in casino where, um, there's a camera bump and yeah. a very, str- mo- you know, uh, intense moment, but because he had such faith in that take, uh, he yeah. just, he left
1: it in there. Oh yeah. No, there's a lot of stuff in th- sprinkled throughout his movies. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene in Goodfellas where, uh, um, oh uh, God, why am I blanking on the actress's name? Debbie Mazar where Debbie Mazar, this is, it's, it's the first time that, uh, Leota is just, is kind of coming on to her mm-hmm. and, you know, like, uh, uh, and he's be, the, the, his mistress is showing the is showing off. You know the the, the apartment that she stays in, yeah. the love nest, and they're all there. And Debbie Mazar is one of the girls that's you know following them around as they go. Here's our bed. Mm. This is where we sleep. Blah blah blah. And he kind of like gives her the look and like follows her. <laughs> right. And she's walking out backwards and she trips. She tripped over it. She tripped over. Oh, a, that's right. She tripped yeah, over yeah. a track. A camera track, and he kept it. He kept it in because it looked like she was like really nervous, but she right. she tripped over equipment. Yeah, and that's and so he's but that t- it worked. It totally worked. because She was so overwhelmed by mm-hmm. why this this guy was coming on to her. But he if it was leaves stuff like for that. her
0: character. Then no,
1: yeah, yeah. and it works. It and another guy who does that a lot is uh is uh, is is Clint Eastwood. Eastwood does stuff like that constantly because he's he's a
0: one take director. exactly he's
1: yeah. the guy like he wants to be out on the golf course by 4 p.m yeah. so uh, just yeah one take is fine and, and they were interviewing I want to say uh, it was uh, Sean Penn they were, we're interviewing, interviewing Sean Penn uh, after the making of, uh, of Mystic River right and during one scene they were ta- he's talking you know intensely and he banged on the table and a coffee a cup of coffee spills mm-hmm. spills mm-hmm. over and then um, you know Penn kind of broke character a little bit thinking that, that Clint was going to call cut, and you know because because of the coffee and, and everything, and he he acted he you know he kept going and then he stopped, and he kind of looks at Clint. He's like, "Clint, the coffee, the coffee spilled. Do you want to stop?" And Clint's like, "Coffee spills, man. <laughs> that happens." So that that's the way, that, that, and he kept it in there too. But that's you know that's funny. Yeah, but no, no. Uh, um, yeah, Mean Streets is one I go back to. Uh, you know, some of the some more times than often, if I'm going to...
0: Yeah, it's one of those movies where you want to hang out with those characters despite the fact that they're assholes. Yeah. Like, same with Jackie Brown for me. I kind of go back to that Because it's like a hangout with these cool characters kind of yeah. movie. Yeah, So, I mean, that's that's the feel I get with and Mean the, Streets. And the more I see it, the more I love
1: it. Well, the, you know, the other thing about Mean Streets is there's a real authenticity to it. Sure. A real it's authenticity. It's very personal, and you can tell. And, yeah, I mean, thematically, and in, in, in location, Yeah. clearly, the you know, uh, it shows... It's one of the most personal movies that, that Scorsese's ever made Correct. in terms of giving showing you his his personality and you know and and, and his beliefs and his love of music. Um, all of that is encapsulated in Mean Streets. Right. It's a, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's you know one of the one of the many masterpieces of the, that that Scorsese. Yeah,
0: movie. and then he sort of veered off and did his first studio film with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Mm-hmm. And I watched this with my mom the other night, and it almost it was almost like a perfect Mother's Day movie in a way it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I still find myself really um, dazzled by it. I mean. It's it comes across to me as like maybe Altman or Cassavetti's tackling a Douglas Cirque film in a way because it it, it has you know the seventies feel to it but it's you know it's also tackling feminist themes yeah um, but what can you say about Ellen Burstyn in this film well, it's just like my first experience with her was actually Requiem for a Dream wow yeah I'm like well I mean maybe I no maybe I had I, you seen I must the have, Exorcist? no I must yeah. have seen The Exorcist yeah, yeah. No, I saw that but I mean I think Requiem for a Dream made me go I need to see everything that she's ever done yeah because there's like a scene between her and Jared Leto Um, you know like in the kitchen where they're just talking that's actually my favorite part of Requiem for a Dream like I I, I like the editing and stuff but I love the intimacy between the mother and son in that moment well and I just God, I need to see everything she's done she
1: is w- one of the best actresses Without that's question. ever worked yeah. uh, and Oddly, I had a crush on her when I was a kid. Uh, like a, I can see why. Yeah, yeah, I had a crush on her when I was a kid. I, I um, and she is phenomenal. And Alice doesn't live here anymore. It, it, it's what's 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 amazing to me is that people there are a lot of people that don't realize that the TV show Alice right is based on that movie. Mm-hmm. Like everybody and in and Vic Tabak's in the movie. Yeah, yeah, in uh, the show right as yeah. Mel. Yeah, and he's also in the TV series, and. Obviously, you know the TV series is as far removed from the movie as possible, Mm -hmm. but you know if you look back at it, you go, "Wait a minute, that's right." Scorsese directed Alice doesn't live here anymore because it seems like an odd thing. Mm -hmm. But again, the themes are there; the same kind of themes are there, and and you know, of course, he uses Keitel in it, which is very odd casting, but he uses (laughs) Keitel in it. Chris Christopherson is really good in the film. Jodie Foster, right? Um, But the th- one of the things about that movie the the strength of, of Alice doesn't live here anymore uh it is not one of the classically stylistic scorsese movies mm-hmm. it's not there's not a lot of crazy flourishes in it and
0: there's definitely a lot of handheld camera work in
1: there notice. is yeah yeah it's got that 70s yeah. you know feel to it mm-hmm. um, but it established him uh even more so as a great actors director right uh and at that point he had never made a movie from a female point of view and still hasn't made a lot of movies from a female point of view. No, um, that's true. And, but did it in a way that, you know, because like, like, before this, you're like, okay, here's, this is the guy who, you know, he's got his goombas and they improvise. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of guys improvising. Mm-hmm. And here you got Alan Burstyn uh, in a film told from a woman's point of view at a time when, you know, in 1974, when a divorced woman was really shunned and looked mm-hmm. down upon and it was you know it was taboo um and so to have that be your main focus especially in a movie directed by a guy who's known for like gangster films or punk movies uh and and have it work so beautifully mm-hmm. um and if i'm not mistaken i was nominated for best picture if i'm not mistaken i think it was i know she was nominated i think she won she did win yeah. and and um
0: rightfully so but
1: yeah no it was just it's it it's just it's a weird it's weird it's a it's a terrific movie it's great but it's weird to look back and go oh yeah that's a Martin Scorsese movie uh told from a woman's point of view um that became a sitcom yeah it's,
0: like, an, it's a little f- bit of an outlier. What you know,
1: but that's that's an interesting one to go back to. It is, um, yeah. I
0: mean, because Alice is a complex character. Like she's kind of mean to her son. Oh you know, yeah, a lot of instances where yeah. it's hard to feel sympathy for her, but you understand why. I mean, she's externalizing her struggle, and just you know, well, my son is here. I'm venting to him, and you know, I understand that to some degree. Yeah, um, but it, it, you know, she's no male fantasy construct either. That's yeah. what I love about it. It's it, she's just a fully dimensional. Woman in yeah. every way, shape, or
1: form. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, uh, uh, she wasn't divorced; she was widowed.
0: Right. So right. that's my fault. But but, but it was, just but kept sing- running but into jerks. But a,
1: exactly. But a single woman is what I'm saying. A single woman in the '70s raising a kid mm-hmm. uh, is not the kind of movie that you would expect Scorsese to direct. Yeah. Um, you know, and it was a stu- it was a studio thing, and it did very well for him. It sure. obviously did very well for him because it led to to uh, uh, Taxi Driver. Which was also a studio film, oddly right. enough. See, back in those days, you know, you could a studio like Columbia could make a movie <laughs> like Taxi Driver. You can't do that now. No. This is a movie like Taxi Driver. If you made Taxi Driver today, it would be an indie. Mm-hmm. You'd have to kickstarter campaign to get it made. You know, and it would end up on VOD. And, <laughs> but this was back in the day when Columbia put up money, like a major studio like Columbia Pictures put mm-hmm. up money, for a movie like Taxi Driver, right. which you can't imagine.
0: You know, when I first saw Fight Club, I couldn't help but think of Taxi Driver's influence on it a mm-hmm. little bit. Just the the voiceover, just the you know, the malaise of, you know, a male struggle and all like Taxi Driver really is sort of like the catcher in the rye of cinema. It's it's like the epitome of the anti hero yeah. in every way. Um I, I I every time I watch it I'm I'm like I'm so taken aback by its brilliance in yeah. every way, shape, and form. It's uh it really captures loneliness. in in such a, like, relatable way, but yet you're still having to confront this, you know, the the mentality of a a sociopath, essentially. essentially. So it's, you know, Travis is like, you know, part John Wayne, part Norman Bates, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's it's someone we feel conflicted towards, but yet I think that's the one thing Scorsese does in almost every single film, that even if a character is very flawed, you still have empathy for them in the
1: end. Well, you know, it's Taxi Driver is my favorite Scorsese movie. Um always has been. Uh oddly first one I saw as we talked about. Sure. Um it's my it's my favorite movie of his and I I think it's a perfect film. I think yeah. everything about it is 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 magnificent and um it is a movie about loneliness. Uh it is a movie whose visuals um represent the theme of the film entirely and uh, uh you know uh, New York uh, is a character in the movie. The mm-hmm. city, it, New York City in the '70s, is a character in that movie. Um, I mean, it's just like this weird, disgusting, neon lit—you know—hell. It's an ugly, ugly city. With yeah, <laughs> with smoke coming up out yeah. of it. It's, it's like it's like the city has like been built on top of the first layer of hell, mm-hmm. and you know, and the only thing holding it back are the sewer lids from you know coming up, and and it, you know, it's a it, it's a it's a, it's an often copied movie. No one will ever be able to make it like Scorsese no. made it. And it is from the point of view, it's an, as we mentioned before, it's an incredibly uncomfortable point of view to put a movie in for two hours to be in this guy's head. Yeah. Um, and Travis Bickle is the world's loneliest man. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, it's, 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 it's interesting to see how, what De Niro did with this performance. And I was, uh, he won for, for Raging Bull and deservedly so. hmm uh, and he's great in *Raging Bull*, but I think of this course. is this is a better performance. I, 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 it's a tougher character. I think it's you know obviously Schrader really made a name for himself on this one as the screenwriter, but th- this movie works on so many incredible levels, and there are things about it that are just to this day every time I see him. There's a scene in the in the movie where after the disastrous date that Travis takes uh, oh, Sybil Shepherd on, yeah, he takes her to a he buys her a Chris Christopherson record that she already owns. And then takes her to a porno movie mm-hmm. um, because he doesn't know, and that's all he knows. Sure, you know this is he doesn't you know he sees couples go into these porno theaters. That's all he does is he, you know, he drives he's, a cab he's all night. Socially
0: inept. He, oh, he completely. Rea- yeah, he completely. doesn't realize that at all.
1: So um, after this disastrous you know date, he is at his flop hotel, and he's using the payphone, and he calls her, and he, so the camera's at the end of a hallway. And the, the the phone is at the end of the hallway, yeah, and at first you up see what I was going to bring up, but yeah, <laughs> <At first laughs> I love you f- that. You see this, you know, he's on the phone, and and mm-hmm. she's, just, I don't want to talk to you. Well, you don't even hear what she's saying. Yeah. You just hear from his point of view, and she's clearly like, "You're you're a weirdo. You took me to a porno movie, you know." And he's like, "Why, you know, why won't you call me?" And the camera pans away from mm-hmm. him to this empty, empty hallway, right? And it stays there for an uncomfortable amount of time, like to the point where it's like. Did Scorsese forget that the camera moved, Mm -hmm. but it's this brilliant visual motif that represents what's going on in this guy's head right now. And this complete lack of, like, there's no connection, nothing. The camera moves away, and then there's this empty, dirty hallway. You could still hear him, you know, on the phone, but what you see, you don't see him talking anymore. You just see this empty hallway. And it's an un- it's really the brilliance of it is you know visually what it stands for and what's going on in the character's mind is represented but it's also again really uncomfortable
0: yeah it's you an know? odd choice but it's so fitting at the same time and it's like i um, i think i think i recognize that shot in reservoir dogs at one point mm-hmm. um, and it, it just it feels like something paul thomas anderson would do yeah um, i'm not sure if he ever did that specifically well, he d- but
1: he doesn't do that there's a scene in he he He's done uncomfortable takes. Yes, that are long. Mm-hmm. He's done that many times. Uh,
0: Boogie Nights comes to mind with Mark's, Marky Mark's face. <laughs> that's right.
1: That shot of the the drug deal in, in Boogie Nights, where it's just this close up of God, do I love that of uh, of Mark Wahlberg's face and this realization that he comes to. Uh, as it's wonderful, it's uncomfortable, yeah. but it's also like a, it's a very Scorsese influenced moment. Mm-hmm. There's no, no no question about it. But yeah, that's one of the many incredible moments. One of my one of the, to me there's this this is a guy who um it just can't identify with people he's a social outcast he's incredibly lonely doesn't know anything except for what's going on in his head and this horrible repeated life that he lives it's like work all night deal with scumbags see weirdos go to a porno movie Mm -hmm. he can't sleep he doesn't sleep um he's you know writing home and sending money is he though that's another question is like does you know does that does that is uh, does he really have parents is that you know is he really sending that money to someone because you think about all that stuff is it is it you know
0: well i think even eber mentioned the possibility of the ending being completely fan
1: oh a fantasy oh yeah i mean it's it's you know from the moment a lot of people have the theory that you know after the bloodshed that happens at the end of the yeah. movie the, the massacre when he comes in and kills everybody um, when the voiceover begins and you see the newspapers mm-hmm. um, and then the you know his voiceover or not his voiceover the uh, the, the, the father of, of Jody, Fo- Jody right. Foster's character hey thank you for mm-hmm. for saving you know our daughter and then like he's a hero yeah. <laughs> it's like wait a minute is this real and then the final scene in the movie where Sybil Shepherd gets in mm-hmm. The car, um and they make eye contact, and you know, uh, uh, and at the at that at the end of the movie when the when there's that that jump cut and he looks in the mirror and adjusts the mirror, um, it, there are two, there are two theories. One, it really did happen, and that's how that's how screwed up it is. Yeah. it's like this guy, this psycho, um, is now a hero, mm-hmm. and and it takes him completely mentally breaking down and killing people before Sybil Shepherd will even say hi to him. <laughs> And he's a time bomb. He's still a time bomb at the end of the movie when he looks yeah. into that thing. That's that, what I think. He's still a time bomb. The other thing, the other theory is that none of it happened. Like you know that that the, the I don't. I agree with you. I think it did happen, and yeah. I think that and and at the end of the movie, that one shot is like a you know he's still out on the street. Mm-hmm. We're fucked. Right. Um, exactly. But some people don't think it happened, and, and that's uh, interesting. Yeah, and well, and coupled with what happens, because you know the. And We'll get to this one at, uh, later, but uh, King of Comedy is a, yeah. I, I think, a, a perfect companion piece. Taxi
0: exactly. Yeah, it's like a one eighty flip. In it a way. is.
1: Yeah. It is. And the ending of te- of of, of uh, King, King of Comedy. Comedy.
0: Yeah. I don't same think it thing. happened.
1: I don't hmm. think it happened. I don't think he got on the show. Hmm. I don't think he did. You know, I, I think that's all in his head. And a lot of people seem to think that that's the same thing with Taxi Driver. Yeah. It, it's And it's weird because they they do both of those movies work extraordinarily well together. Oh, yeah. Because like although, you know, I don't think uh, Rupert, you know, obviously is a sociopath and he's going to kill anybody. No. But he is a sad, sad, lonely dude who lives in his mom's basement. Very socially awkward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, pretends that he's on a talk show and mm-hmm. um uh and you know, he's but he's this really really sad dude who has this this you know they say that from the a lot of people say that from the moment um he gets kicked out of uh, the house, like when he, when they show up at Jerry Langford's house, and they're like, he's like, get out. From that moment on, it's like the rest of the movie is in his head. Is oh, what really? what some people the whole said. kidnapping thing? Yeah, none huh. of it happened. They 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 say that it's in his head, but that's they, we can talk about that. I don't know that yeah, <laughs> but anyway, uh, back to Taxi Driver. Fascinating there there are about. there are things in there are things in Taxi Driver. The, my favorite scene, uh, the scene that I find the the hardest to watch. Every single time I watch the movie, the scene that just, and it has nothing to do with, you know, the extreme sex or the violence or the weirdness of it. There's, it's the one scene in the movie where Travis reaches out to someone. And it, it's a devastating scene to me. It is, it's, its for me, it's the turning point of the whole movie. Um, uh, uh, Peter Boyle is in the film. Yeah. And he plays a, a guy named The Wizard. And he's a cab driver, but he's like this sage mm-hmm. cab driver that everybody goes to and they talk to when they're in the cafeterias and stuff. They all sit around Peter Boyle. Mm-hmm. He's like the centerpiece. He's got all the great stories. He's the most experienced taxi driver he's there. He's been doing it
0: for 17 years or he's something. He's
1: been like doing that. it forever, and he yeah. knows everything. So after we've been watching this movie from Travis's point of view, and we realize this guy is pretty fucked up, um, there's a scene in the movie where he, he goes outside, with they're in, they're in front of the cafeteria and he goes outside and he starts talking to to Peter Boyle because this is the guy he needs to talk to. Right. This is the wizard. He knows everything. And and he starts to tell him he's got bad thoughts. You know, like yeah. it's it's this moment. It's a it's a, it's a chilling moment in the movie. Travis is like, "Okay, look, man, you're the guy I need to talk to. Mm-hmm. I got some shit in my head." that's really fucked up and bad and i'm thinking about doing something bad and he he's obviously very inarticulate throughout sure. the entire film yeah um but this is the moment when he's really he's like he's this is the one time in the movie when he reaches out like yeah. i think what i'm thinking is fucked up i think it's bad you have to confirm this for me you have to let mm-hmm. me know that this is indeed really i shouldn't be thinking this way and he's talking to Peter Boyle, and he gets nothing from Boyle. Boyle's like, I don't even know what the hell you're talking about. Right. And He tells him to go out and get laid, get drunk, and it, you that's can the st-
0: stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah.
1: and 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 the the scene is devastating. Yeah, it's like the one, t- and then in the, the next sequence, he's buying guns. Like in the next scene, yeah. he meets up with the dude in the hotel room, who, by the way, was Scorsese's coke dealer <laughs> in real life. um that guy, that guy seriously was a coke dealer. He was a he was he was see that. he, he, was a, he <laughs> Scorsese he was like, uh, this guy he plays the part pretty well. He, he yeah, he he sold guns, he sold coke. He was that that he yeah. was that guy. Mm-hmm. And um wow. so but that scene, that scene between Boyle and De Niro is the turning point of the movie. And every yeah. time I watch the movie, it, that's the toughest scene for me to watch. Yeah, it's
0: you know, like, like an uncomfortable therapy session where he's trying to open up, be vulnerable. Right. And he gets nothing. Well, and not and only then,
1: that, you realize that Peter Boyle is full of shit. Yeah. Like his character, yeah. the whole movie, you know, like before that, oh, this guy's the he's the wizard. That's why mm-hmm. they call me the wizard. He says, and full then you realize, <laughs> yeah, then you realize he's full of shit. Like it's yeah. like after that. So, but that's the that's the turning point in the movie. And um, that's an amazing scene. It's it's not one that stands
0: out. It's not the mirror sequence, you know, that right. everybody knows. But and the I mean, I, even the first time I saw this, that overhead slow motion shot after the bloodshed was just like. Wow! Yeah. Like, I'd never seen a camera do something like that outside oh, well, the, of Evil the Dead. <laughs> the whole,
1: you know, like, after the the mayhem, that whole sequence with the camera, yeah. you know, slowly showing the destruction and the death and everything with leading Bernard's,
0: out. Bernard's Herman score finally kicking in at yeah. that moment. Good and, Lord.
1: And, you know, the, the, the camera going outside and you see the cops running in slow motion and the, you know, reporters showing up and yeah. all that stuff. And with Herman's score, um, which, by the way, was his last score. Which was uh, yes, yeah. Bernhard Herman's last score. And he mm-hmm. didn't. He, he finished the score. and never got to see the movie. Um, oh, that's but sad. but it's an amazing and, and that's another thing yeah. that adds to the movie immeasurably. Yeah, because I mean, there's not is, a lot of
0: pop songs in this at all. There's like yeah. just one. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but, and but, there's yeah. also
1: the scene where he's watching American Bandstand, right? And he <laughs> he kicks <laughs> the TV over with the big forty-four Magnum, yeah. uh, in his hand. Um, but no, I you know it's it's just it's, it's an endlessly fascinating movie, um, and uh, it's a, it's sad. And and it is very Travis sad. Travis is a really tragic character. Um, sadly, um, a guy that still exists. You know what I mean? Those guys are out there. Yeah. And, and um, you know, maybe more so at that time in the seventies. And mm-hmm. I mean, because obviously there, there's a reference to the fact that he had just got back from Vietnam. Vietnam, right? Um, but there was a time when there were a time. They're still they're still out there. There's a lot of Travis Pickles out there. Yeah. That's um, a
0: sad. It's it's just, I mean that just happens in society sometimes and like in a place that's kind of overwhelming like New York. Yeah. where you you do, do have to deal with a lot of uh difficult people and you know people who aren't necessarily socially um adept it's just yeah. it's it's a difficult movie to rewatch, but i like i i'm so amazed by it as from from a craftsmanship uh perspective and just everything about it every shot is just everything is done in this controlled confident manner yeah um and it you know it's a deconstruction of masculinity it's so there's so many layers to this movie and i watch it and i go gosh this is one of the great american if not the best american film of the 70s it's close it's, yeah. it's got to be up there but yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I would I I would I would agree with that. I mean there are you know the for you know, for my money, the seventies was the best decade in the history of film. For sure. Um and there are a lot of amazing movies and conversations. So.
0: Well we can make all this, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm, well, and The Godfather and yeah. you know, so many other great films of the seventies and um but it was a, it was a decade where you know I mean Rocky won Best Picture that year and and you know uh, <laughs> this happens a
0: lot to Scorsese. Well, it, it
1: does. Yeah, it does. And then you know he inevitably he, he you know he wins Oscars for the wrong movie. But right. but but that year, if you go back and look in 78, 1978, or I'm sorry, seventy six. Seventy six. Yeah. Um, you've got Taxi Driver. You've got Rocky. Rocky wins. It was the same year as as Network. And you know, and if I'm not mistaken, all the President's Men. Mm-hmm. Was that year as well? Yeah, I think so. So yeah. it was this like what the so that right there is an indication of the kind of movies that were being. These were studio films. Mm-hmm. An indication of the kind of movies that were being made that aren't being made now that wouldn't get made now. Right. So, but yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's it's still my favorite. It's still my favorite uh, Scorsese movie. I get into arguments with people about it all the time. Um you know, because there I,
0: people who don't feel that strongly about it.
1: Well, well, I, then it's my favorite because ninety mm-hmm. percent of the people that I hang out with, people good that fellas, I know, man, it's, it's always good fellows. Yeah. and I don't, see, you know, there's that's oh, my course. second. That's my second favorite Scorsese movie. Yeah, it's, it, obviously it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. There's no question about it. But there's just something about Taxi Driver. Maybe it's because it's the first one I saw at, at such a young age. Yeah, uh, and it was it gave me like nightmares. <laughs> like it was a I found the movie to be it made my skin crawl. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it 's a psychological horror film of sorts pretty much know? yeah and and maybe maybe that 's what it is. I also think that it might be you know because of when it was released in terms of his career, what it meant yeah um, and uh, so i, I don 't know it 's just but it 's always the one that I go back to it 's my favorite
0: one that Scorsese himself expressed disappointment with, and you know I mean he was going through a lot of struggles at the time with depression and addiction. Um, and I think this film had a lot of studio interference was New York, New York. Um, and I've yet to see it, but, um, do you think this is essential or is it really flawed? I mean, I, I know it's got a long running time too, but. Well, it depends on what cut you watch. There's two different cuts. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I don't know if it's essential. Mm -hmm. It's definitely worth looking at. There's, there's, there's no question about it. Sure. Um, I think to see
0: him tackle a musical would be interesting. It is. no, no, no.
1: And well, cl- you know, clearly, I mean, you know, music is a very, very important part of all of his movies. Right. Um, the the thing about it uh, is, I think, I think De Niro's terribly miscast in it. Hmm. Um, he's good. That's in rare it. Rare to hear. He's good <laughs> in it, but he's the wrong guy for the role. Um, the The other thing about it is, it's it's you know, he was really like. I, I don't know. I, I think he was really going out of his way stylistically with this thing. Mm-hmm. I think because he was making a quote-unquote musical, he felt like he had to. It had to be like an extravaganza. But the thing, yeah, the problem, and it does visually. It's, a, it's 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 there's great stuff in it, and uh, some really imaginative shots, and great use of music, and really flashy uh, set design, production design, and costumes, and uh, the whole the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like he he went all out, and he made a big budget, flashy, bright spectacle of a musical. Ultimately though, what it is, is, um, it's a movie about two people that can't stand each other. And, and, and it's at two and a half hours long. I mean, there's just, there is an, an extraordinary amount of arguments in this (laughs) film to the point where it's kind of unpleasant. It's just, you know, and, and here's this like big brassy sort of musical. You've got Liza Minnelli in the lead. Um, and it's just these two characters that are just it's just conflict after conflict after conflict. So not it's not a, a little
0: ca- Cassavetti sneaking in there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not a it's not a particularly pleasant movie to watch. Hmm. Um it's interesting and as as you know, uh, you know as a film scholar like you are, you should see it. Yeah. You know, just for historic purposes, historical purposes. But I don't you ask if it's essential, I don't think it's essential. I think if you if you're looking to grab onto a bunch of scorsese and get a and get a gist of what this guy is and was uh i don't think this is a necessary well, i think film you know, to yeah, watch. i haven't uh, seen it in years
0: a lot of directors failures sometimes tend to be very interesting in and of themselves yeah so i mean that's why i mean i will i will definitely get to it but just because he you know he's he's expressed a lot of unhappiness with the film too it's like um i kind of go i'll wait <laughs> i'll get to well it, this know? again
1: was at a time when scorsese was you know there's a period of time, and, and there was a lot of studio interference on this movie. Yeah, like of uh, like of uh, I more think than of, gangs in New York. I think. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think of all of the movies that he's done, this one probably had the most uh, interference by a studio. Yeah. Um, it was at a time in his life when he, as you mentioned, he was, stu- he was struggling with addiction. There was a, it's a you know we're not speaking out of school here. He's talked about it. He's right. He had a massive cocaine habit in the seventies. At that time, uh, when they were making the movie, and um, it was a, it was a horrendous experience for him. Um, uh just putting it together and it was never quite the movie he wanted it to be he had this grand musical vision in his head Mm -hmm. um and what he got was a pretty flashy looking domestic drama with some great music uh anchored by a lead male performance by an actor who should not have played the role at least that's the way i look at it Um, it's not terrible it's certainly worth seeing like any Mm -hmm. scorsese movie is worth seeing but
0: yeah i mean gosh i mean you you talk about domestic dramas and marital strife and disputes. Holy cow, raging bull. Yeah. I mean, but one might I mean, I think a lot of people would point to this scene, but just, uh, one of the best scenes in acting history is really Lamada just pounding in that jail cell. Yeah. You know, asking where his life went wrong. Yeah. And,
1: I just, uh, screened it at, at my film club, uh, last month. Right. And, um, you know, by the way, to see it on the big screen was, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it since uh, on the big screen since 1980 when it came out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was that, that movie was a very personal movie for Scorsese in terms of what he was going through. Um, Marduk Martin and, and, uh, Schrader wrote the screenplay. And again, it's about redemption. Um, it's redemption, uh, sought, sought through violence and sought through violence to, you know, one's own person. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: self-destruction in a way. Absolutely. Yeah. Without
1: question. Uh, Scorsese was going through a really bad period after New York, New York. Uh, So he did The Last Waltz, which uh, you know was a terrific documentary. But like the cocaine usage during the making of that movie, um, after the flop that was, and you got to you got to remember, New York, New York was a big budget movie. It was a very big budget movie, and it was a bomb. Like it was, it was a bomb. And Scorsese took it real hard. Yeah. Uh, The the cocaine usage, you know, went up. Uh, it, him not giving a shit about anything started to happen. He just didn't care. Um, he was in the hospital. He, he his drug addiction got so bad that he ended up in the hospital. And and it was De Niro uh, who brought the project to him hmm. and said, "Look, you, you you know, you need to do this." Right. And um, if I remember correctly, I think he gave him the book. I think he gave him. Uh, the book, yeah. Maybe he was too. Mm-hmm. It was before the hospital incident, but he had, he was aware of the book. But it was De Niro who said, "Hey, this is the movie that you need to do." And he put everything into it. Scorsese did, yeah, everything. And you can tell when 100%. you watch that movie, um, you know, the personal stuff that's in that film and the shit that he was going through at that time. It's all up there on the screen. It's all up yeah. there.
0: Yeah, the the male insecurity and just I I think. I mean, I think Jake is afraid to be alone, and that, you know, the idea of, you know, his wife going off and being with another man is enough to drive him insane. Yeah. But, I mean, he's uh, defined by what he does in the ring. And so, you know, that's kind of why he expresses himself that way. Mm-hmm. It's just a really fascinating character study. And, like, that's, and that was also the first appearance of uh, Joe Pesci, yep. who's fantastic in this. Yep. And it's, it's just, I. It's one of those movies that you you, you feel like you're you're just watching um, perfection
1: yeah. on screen. Well, you know, there's and there's there's no scum. I can't. I feel terrible that I can't remember the composer's name. He uses an Italian composer from yeah. the early 1900s. Uh, uh, or, uh yeah, early 1900s. Uh, his his music is used in the film. So there's no right. You know, I mean, there's there there are songs in it, like period songs and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But there's no score. Um, and from from. The use of that in the opening credits the, alone. The opening credits. Yeah. The Michael Chapman cinematography is gorgeous. <laughs> um, the fact that he shot it in black and white was a really ballsy move in 1980. Sure. Although, strangely, uh, there were two best picture nominees that year that were both black and white. Huh. The other one was The Elephant Man.
0: Oh right, yeah. And
1: they both came out the same year. <laughs> and so, like, I don't know what the odds are of that. Two out of the five best picture nominees in right. 1980 were black and white. Um, but. You know the 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 fact that Jake LaMotta in real life embraced the project, one is fascinating. Yeah, uh, that he's a consultant on it, mm-hmm. and he's like in, portrayed in the movie as the biggest dick on earth. Yeah. Um <laughs> but he was like a consultant; he was real proud of it, which also says something about his character. You know, like a Jake LaMotta. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he was on the talk show circuit when that movie came out. Yeah, <laughs> he was doing like Johnny Carson. He's like, oh yeah, I'm real proud of it. It's like, what the f-, you know. <laughs> I'm proud of being a dick. Yeah, I'm proud of beating the shit out of my wife. Um, But so, so all it it was just like the perfect storm. Everything Mm -hmm. came together at the same time. Like personally, what was happening in Scorsese's life, uh, fed the movie. Yeah, and what was going on in terms of his relationship with De Niro was happening. uh, Discovering Kathy Moriarty, uh, bringing Joe Pesci in. It all just it all came into place with this movie, Um, and. It's you know it's 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 a really you know it goes without saying it's an amazing film but the the other things that I love about about the movie and you know you can talk about the themes about redemption about a guy a guy who uh, lets his feelings out in the ring after he you know when he can't beat the shit out of his wife he's beating the shit out of somebody in the ring or in in in, in, in if he's feeling guilty letting yeah. someone beat the shit out of him devastating boxing yeah.
0: match at one yeah. point.
1: So, but the 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 thing about it, outside of all of that, you know, is I, I, you know, the 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 improvisations in this in this movie in Raging Bull particularly are my favorite. Uh, of like, I think of, of all of the stuff that they improvised because a ton of stuff was improvised in Raging mm-hmm. Bull, a ton of stuff. Um, You've and, mentioned the steak, the steak uh- <laughs> scene I, at the beginning when his first wife is cooking him a steak, and he's like. Uh, Hey, don't overcook it. If you overcook it, it defeats its own purpose. Which is still a line I don't understand. Right. I don't know what the hell it means, yeah. but it's one of my favorite lines in cinema history. Don't overcook it. Overcook it's no good. It defeats its own purpose. But the stuff between him and Pesci, man, uh, in that movie is so great and so funny um, and so much fun to watch, you right. know, but also they never. It doesn't feel extraneous. It doesn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel added on. It Within yeah. the context of the movie, it all works.
0: Yeah. It feels genuine.
1: Yeah. And they, and they, I mean, you get two guys like that improvising, you can just let them go. Right. So there are scenes in the movie where the, the, the improvisation is amazing. Like this, the whole steak scene where he flips the table, starts screaming about the steak. That's when Pesci first makes his entrance and they're in an apartment. They were, they were actually filming in an apartment, mm-hmm. like a real New York apartment building. Right. And, uh, He's flipping tables, they're screaming, they're doing the take, and all of a sudden outside, you hear, would you shut up in there, you animal? That was not an actor. That was a tenant who lived in the building across the hallway. That was a real guy. Oh my gosh. And then when, when De Niro like opens up the window and turns, what are you calling me? What are you calling an animal, you son of a bitch? That's all. That was him reacting to a real guy. So Scorsese kept the camera running, and... Then he, he ended up like, okay, so they kept it in there because mm-hmm. this guy was, this neighbor was like, the fuck is going on? You guys are flipping tables and screaming, you know, you're animals. And if you watch the take, <laughs> if you watch the scene where, where like, you can hear the guy, the neighbor, the real neighbor, not actor screaming, De Niro doesn't break character, but he smiles and he goes, you believe this son of a bitch and he's <laughs> he's got like a grin on his, face, he's calling me an animal and he starts screaming and Pesci's trying to calm him down and then eventually they do a cutaway shot where he's looking out the window Yeah, and, uh, he 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 named him Larry, like the neighbor became a character in the movie. <laughs> this guy who's screaming at these filmmakers for making yeah. too much noise, that guy becomes Larry. Larry, who now owns a dog that you know lamada going to kill in the hallway mm-hmm. and so all that shit came out of that one moment yeah. all of that stuff like Very larry is a character larry yeah. is a character in the movie who has a dog and <laughs> it's all because of, during that one take that happened and there's a lot of that magical shit that happens in scorsese's movies but i think in particularly some of the best stuff uh came out of raging bull yeah some of the best character interactions in all of his films are in this movie Unbelievable. without man. a doubt unbelievable and the, and um you know there's a scene in the movie where they wait it's the, it's the championship it's finally his shot at the title um and uh they have to wait 24 hours because it's an outdoor fight and the, it's raining so they have to wait 24 hours and they're in the hotel room everybody's in the hotel room is his ring man mm-hmm. his stitch guy joey is in there uh vicky is there and then like uh nicholas uh god i always forget how to pronounce his name uh coach from from cheers oh he plays the main uh he plays the main goomba Nicholas Castellan Castellano or no no that's it's yeah <laughs> but, but anyway coach from from yeah. cheers isn't it mm-hmm. and he plays the main gangster guy like he's the guy you can't get a title shot without being this guy right. being a part of this guy's uh, group and uh it, you know de niro is completely resistant to it doesn't want to be a part of it but he eventually he has to takes a dive which is one of the most uh you know incredible scenes in the movie after he takes that dive um but anyway, they're in a hotel room and uh he comes to visit. The 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 gangsters mm-hmm. come to visit. And uh you know, you see Vicky, you know, his wife this is, and as you mentioned, he's you know or, uh De Niro is like insanely jealous over anybody who even talks to or looks at her, anything. It's gets to the point where it's completely absurd. So anyway, there's a Scene in the movie where they visit and he, they leave. And he calls, he calls Vicky over. He says, come here. And they're talking. And he slaps oh. Kathy Moriarty across the face. yeah uh, That's not in the script. That, where he slaps her across oh, the wow. face. That's not in the script. Uh, 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 Improvised moment? Well, Sc- Scorsese told him to do it. Yeah. And so, okay. so what happened? Nobody, knew, nobody on set knew it was going to happen. Least of which uh, Kathy Moriarty, who had to take the <laughs> slap. And, and Pesci didn't know either. And so Pesci's in the foreground of the shot when it happens, and he's like, don't talk to me like that, don't you ever, and then he slaps her across the face. You can see Pesci jump, and like if you watch the take, he moves, he starts to make a move towards hmm. De Niro. Um, and Kathy Moriarty's reaction to that slap is unbelievable, as it should be. And she sure. was pissed at Scorsese when yeah. he yelled cut. She was like, what the, f-, you know, what was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but like in the movie, <laughs> the reaction in the movie is amazing, and the...
0: Yeah, sometimes those the film is sometimes directors go to like those that. lengths, like yeah. obviously Kubrick did with The Shining and everything. It just ugh. Yeah. it makes you a little uncomfortable, but it works so well for yeah. the scene that, yeah. like you know, um, yeah, Raging Bull, another masterpiece.
1: Yeah, no huh. question about it. And and uh, so many memorable things um, in the movie. There there are lines of dialogue that I always that I uh, that stay with me. The you know that you know like uh, um, the scene where uh, De Niro uh, uh he gets pissed off at uh, at Vicky. Oh like the one scene where he gets pissed off at her <laughs> the scene where he gets pissed off at her at because she says that Janeiro, this guy he's gonna fight. She's he's good, he's an up and he's good looking, he's an up and comer. says, what do you mean good looking? Yeah, take the baby, go, get out of here. <laughs> right. Get out of here. And then um and, and, and so Pashi is sitting there with his wife, mm-hmm. Teresa Salada, who was in Mean Streets, Yeah. Uh and their kids. And uh and so they're, you know, they're having a conversation. He sends her, go, go, get out of here. And then Pesci... You know, Teresa Salada says something and Pesci goes, Why don't you here? It's between my brother and his wife. Get, go take the kid. Go, you get out of here, too. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and it's, the, the stuff that comes between the two guys, man, you know, the I whole, know. What, you know, like, uh, hit me, I want you to hit me. I want you to fucking lay right. me out. I want you to hit me. That whole scene, spectacular. Um, and after he, uh, when De Niro, you know, like, goes to, goes to Joe Pesci's house, you know, busts down the door and beats the shit out of him. Um, and then they have that they're estranged, obviously. He won't talk to, you know, Pesci won't talk to him anymore. The scene where he sees him on the street.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, almost at the end of the film. Right. Um, uh, It's it's an unbelievable scene where they first yeah. see each other on the street and he follows him to his car. And he keeps hugging. And him he hugs and him. he won't yeah. stop hugging him. Yeah. And what's r- amazing about that scene is that was, you know, Pesci purposely lost weight and grew a mustache just for that scene. <laughs> So here's De Niro, who is like 60 pounds, you know, I mean, obviously yeah. the legend here, oh, he gained 60 pounds, mm-hmm. which is really unbelievable. But he's, he's like 60 pounds heavier. Pesci lost like 35 pounds. And so at first, it's like, is that, yeah. is that Joey? Because it doesn't, it but doesn't then you realize like him it's him. Right. But if you look, he looks so much older. Mm-hmm. And he just did it for that one scene. That's incredible. Yeah. And there's other That's stuff. That's dedication, man. No, <laughs> oh, I know. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, they had a, they had a you know... They had a break in the shooting because he had to gain all that goddamn weight. Sure. So,
0: <laughs> just eat uh, donuts and ice cream or something. That's it. He
1: yeah. ate uh, cheeseburgers and, and milkshakes, and he would go to sleep. Oh wow! He would eat a bunch of cheeseburgers and milkshakes and go to sleep. That's the life. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the other thing, the other thing is uh, one of my favorite moments in the movie. This is another improvised moment. I just want to mention this one really quickly. The next time you watch it, go back and watch the scene because I it kills me every time I see it. I laugh my ass off every time I see it. It's the scene. Where he's uh, been busted on the by the vice squad for uh, fucking around with a fourteen year old right. girl, okay, Jake has. Mm-hmm. So he he's got to post, you know, he posts bail, so he needs money. So he goes over. To this at this point, Vicky's left him. He, she took the kids; they're gone. Right. So he they're now divorced, uh, and he's just just this fat, pathetic nightclub owner mm-hmm. in Florida. All right. So, but he needs money because he's got to go to trial, and he's like, you know, so he goes. He's he knocking on on Vicky's door. And she's like, I don't want you to come in. He's like, it's gonna, I'll be in here. take me one minute. I just got to get one thing. Just one thing. And she's like, look, the kids are sleeping. Just don't disturb the kids. I'm not going to disturb the kids. Whatever. So he goes in. He grabs his championship belt that she has right. on the mantelpiece. Mm-hmm. So he grabs the belt. And there are jewels in the belt. So he thinks if he, if he takes the jewels off the yeah. belt, he can sell the Pawned jewels off, right. mm-hmm. and, and get enough money to cover his bail and his expenses and all that shit. So he won't go to jail. So he goes in, and she's already said she doesn't want him there. Mm. The kids are asleep, you know. So he comes in, he grabs the belt, and he's at like a kitchen counter. And at the other side of the kitchen counter is this like china cabinet with all these dishes and stuff stacked on it, Uh, you know, displayed like old dishes and things like that. So he takes out like a hammer and a screwdriver and starts banging on the (laughs) on the on the uh, on the belt to get the, the the jewels off of the belt and she's like "Jake" cuz he's banging and banging. Mm-hmm. It's like I told you the kids are asleep. You're going to wake the kids. <laughs> and he takes a towel, like that's going to help, and he wraps it around the to- uh, the, the belt and yeah. starts banging the hammers are banging and banging. <laughs> As he's banging, the china cabinet shakes and all the like a bunch of dishes yeah. fall off, which clearly was not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. But it's in fra- it's in the frame. Like you can see the dishes f- shake mm-hmm. because he's banging and falls off. Yeah. And and De Niro goes after the- after the, the, the plates all fall off and smash on the ground, he turns, he looks at Kathy Moriarty, he goes, what's the matter with you? Why are you going to put the dishes someplace where they're going to fall down? <laughs> like, he blames her for it. And, like, I don't know, because it, 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 there's a very quick cut after he says that, because I got a feeling that, like, everybody on the set probably lost their shit, including Kathy Moriarty, just started yeah. laughing. But like, what's the matter with you? Why are you going to put the dishes someplace where they're going to fall down?
0: <laughs> it's <laughs> crazy a movie about self-destruction can be so funny at the same time.
1: I know. No, <laughs> it is. And people, you know, people forget there are a lot of laughs in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, it's not a funny movie. It's about redemption and, and, and violence and sadness. And it, and it ends on a very melancholy note. And you know, the, the quote that he uses from the Bible at the end, uh, you know, where, where, he, where he cures the blind, where mm-hmm. Christ cures the blind guy, now I can see. Um, and then he dedicates the film. He dedicates the film to his to his college uh, uh, film teacher, right. to his professor, um, and it was the, it was this journey that he went on after the disaster of New York, New York, uh, after the personal problems with uh, women, and after the the cocaine. Uh, this whole movie was a personal statement about yeah. redemption, and it, it feels like catharsis for him. Yeah. In, in a lot of it, ways. it does. And you know when he says, "Now I see," you know, uh, "Now I can see." That it was that quote was from the Bible but also associated with the with the professor, um, because you know, film is what made him see. You know, he could now yeah. see through film. And it was it's a it, you know, on every level that movie is just remarkable. On every level. Speaking of comedy, we <laughs> have two in a row. Yeah. Um, wow. Now to follow up, I always thought it was weird <laughs> that he followed up Raging Bull with the King of Comedy. Yeah. Um, because you know like Raging Bull was a massive success. Well not you know not in terms of box office. Uh, It was critically, critically, it was acclaimed. It didn't do great at the box office. And, you know, obviously through the years it gained much more notoriety because Mm -hmm. it it, it was it was it did okay at the box office. But, uh, you know, nominated for all kinds of Academy Awards, De Niro wins. Um, And he follows it up with one of the weirdest, darkest, darkest and most uncomfortable movies of all time. Mm -hmm. And man, did King of Comedy Tank when it came out. Wow. Man
0: you know it's an, an, another portrayal of a well-meaning but rather egotistical guy whose passion, you know, sort of drives him to do crazy things. Um, you know, it's like we said earlier, it's like the 180 flip on Taxi Driver where, you know, he's he's stalking a different kind of person this time and yeah. um yeah, I just it's it's another movie that's kind of like about a quest for admiration and wanting to be noticed and seen and De Niro's performance in this—I mean, even just in that the backseat limo alone—that that whole dialogue exchange between the two of them—it's uncomfortable, yeah. but it's just so like the comedic timing on that is just perfect. I just—I I love this movie. The more I watch it, yeah, I do. Like, you know, it's funny because you mentioned that the the, the final act is sort of being a complete fantasy sequence. Um, maybe it's just like I want to believe that he actually got on the air, but yeah. I mean it's implausible too. So I don't know. It's it's, it's a, one of those things where I'm I'm not sure, but it makes sense that it would be a, a complete fantasy. I, I remember when
1: it came out, I was, uh, you know, at this point I was headlong into in, into movies uh, big time, and Scorsese was you know like a god in my book. And I was I was I think it, yeah, I was a sophomore in high school, maybe a junior junior in high school, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a junior when it came out uh and i remember seeing it and just being baffled by it like what what, what, what? <laughs> cuz you know i mean it's it's there's it's i don't necessarily think that the film is a fa- is a flat out comedy i mean there's funny stuff in it uh but but like uh taxi driver and like some of the other films that he's made this is a this is a movie about a lost soul um and I, you know as a massive jerry lewis fan i was very excited to see this movie oh sure Um, you know jerry was coming off of a huge hit i don't know if you remember this but when 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 king of comedy came out jerry lewis had a monster hit in the box office with hardly working Hmm. it was like this massive comeback for lewis out of nowhere like the last thing anybody expected because came out in 1980 the last thing anybody expected in 1980 was a jerry lewis movie to be number one at the box office wow and it was huge so not just in France. No, in America. Like, <laughs> wow. it was in, in one of the biggest box office successes hmm. that he had in America in 20 years at that point? No, Jeez. not 20. It was 1980, so maybe 10-ish mm-hmm. years, 10, 15 years. So, so uh, uh, you know, hardly working. When King of Comedy came out, Jerry Lewis was the big star. Like, Jerry Lewis, well, was a big star anyway. Yeah, But cur- at that current time, within the last 10 months, the guy had a box, he had a number one box office hit. Mm-hmm. So when they were coming off of it, he was the draw. Like Lewis was back on top and he was the draw. And I think when people who like Jerry Lewis or have some concept as to what Jerry Lewis is going to be, go see King mm-hmm. of Comedy, I'm like, what the hell is this? Because yeah. it's such a strange movie. Right. Um, it's like seeing Jim Carrey doing a drama all of a sudden. It's well, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of by it. Some of the stuff, in you know, like I think King of Comedy is, I, you know, I, I love King of Comedy. I, I, there are. Things in King of Comedy that are, there's a sequence in King of Comedy, to me, one of the most uncomfortable sequences ever filmed, and it's the scene where they just show up at the summer house, uninvited. And uh, and when Jerry Lewis comes back to the house from the golf course, he's still got the golf club in his hand, Mm -hmm. Uh, and they have this scene where he's trying to get rid of these two people, this Rupert Pupkin guy, uh, and the unfortunate date, Diane Abbott, Um, that, that whole scene, first of all, was improvised. And the whole, oh, wow. like when he says, uh, uh, oh, you know, when De Niro says, yeah, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and Lewis's response is, so did Hitler. <laughs> totally improvised. And when yeah. Scorsese, when he said it, Scorsese had to cover his mouth and, and from laughing and like hide, mm-hmm. but they kept it in and they kept it running. And the longer that scene goes on, the more uncomfortable it is. Right. And, and that's kind of what the whole movie is like. Um, and there are some, there's some very funny things in it. I think uh, Sandra Bernhard is amazing in it. Uh, and that was a breakout role for her, oh, for sure. And I, it, it was just—it's an odd movie, and an especially odd movie to make after Raging Bull. I'm guessing he, like, Scorsese was like, "Okay, I, I got that one out of my system. Now I'm just going to do this weird, funny thing," and I get to work with Jerry Lewis. Right. That's what I think. You know, it's like, it, whatever. Uh, you know, th- this this movie that I just made was a real purge for me, mm-hmm. and so now I just want to make a comedy and I want to work with Jerry Lewis.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Um, You know, we have to speed it up a little bit here. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, because we're only in 1982 at this (laughs) point. I know.
0: Okay. My personal favorite, and I think one of the – I think Colin shares this sentiment with me. Mm -hmm. After Hours is by far my favorite Scorsese movie. Okay. Like, it's – I adore the energy of this movie, the camera work – just the fact that like he just went for broke with some shots, like the keys fallen from the apartment shot was like Griffin Dunn could have been killed. That's why yeah. that's what I could, have, that's why I keep reading is like Griffin Dunn could have been killed with the camera coming down. Yeah. And, um, it's very like Kafka-esque, but it's also just really hilarious and it's uncomfortably hilarious. It's like watching curb your enthusiasm for ninety minutes where just like things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and crazier and more absurd. Um and you know, Hitchcock influenced Scorsese's visual approach, like the attention to detail, just showing like but, you know, bagels and cream cheese and like, you know, just weird random things throughout this movie mm-hmm. that I just absolutely adore. And I keep coming back to this, like how how you've watched Mad Max Fury Road 37 times. Yeah. I think that applies to me with After Hours. I keep going back to this movie. I keep showing it to other people. Um, much like Punch Drunk Love's become my fault. Favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. After Hours has become my favorite Scorsese movie. Yeah. It's just infinitely rewatchable and crazy.
1: It's a it's a great film. I vividly remember seeing it the first time I saw it I saw it at the there used to be a screening room in Evanston. Mm. Uh uh was it was a cinema cine, cine center which it eventually reopened in in uh downtown. But in the early 80s this this was a a place where people saw a, a lot of screenings and um this is when I first started Reviewing for Roy, uh, I started in '85, right. and I started getting invited to critic screenings on a regular basis. So, this, if I remember correctly, was the fall of '85, if I'm not mistaken. No, maybe it was a little earlier than that. Um, but it was 1985. I just remember it was 1985, and we were. I saw it in Take uh <laughs> in uh at the, so at the, at the cine, cine, cine center in Evanston. Um, and it was me. It was Roy. Dave Kerr was sitting behind me. Nice. Uh, who's, I think, the best film critic in the country. And um, I just remember when it was over, we were all just kind of like looking around at each other like, wow. You know, that, that was pretty unbelievable. The, the, thing about, the thing about After Hours um, is that it's really like a, a lot of the visual flourishes that Scorsese became known for later in his career started yeah. with, with After Hours. Absolutely. It was um, a pure exercise in style. No question about it, and and you know, Michael Bauhaus, I think shot the film if I'm not mistaken. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but like editing technique, the you know the, the construction of the sequences, the, the 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 frequent use of zoom, the frequent use of of, of the cameras mobile throughout almost the entire film. Yeah. Um, that he had never really done that kind of stuff to that extent. Mm-hmm. Here and there there were flourishes. Sure. But not to the point where the way it was done in After Hours. Uh, the 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 sharp editing uh you know the 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 acting styles too like it, it's a very it's not cartoonish but it's it's stylized from not just visually but in terms of acting as well
0: yeah it's like um, a screwball comedy in a, yeah,
1: way. a really dark screwed up yeah. screwball comedy um it's also a movie where i don't know if i've ever seen a movie that more accurately captures Late night paranoia than this film, yeah. Uh, uh, in a, in such an incredible way. I mean, there's some scary stuff in After Hours. Some really creepy stuff in After, yeah. After Hours. Um, Being chased by a mob. Yeah. Well, not only that, like little little, truck. little <laughs> things, little things like when he's in the apartment and um, uh, he's been enticed, and who wouldn't be? He's been enticed by Roseanne Arquette to come back, you know, to her place. Yeah. At you know. He goes out in the middle of the night just with you know, in the hopes of getting laid and shows up at her place and there's just this weird shit going on in the loft and <laughs> Linda Fiorentino is there, she's paper mache and all this weird shit, and then she starts to act kind of misterioso and talks about being burned, and there's a book on burn. You know, and and so there's that paranoia there. Like you start to visualize things that you think are there that aren't.
0: Yeah, even he does at one point.
1: Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like it's like this guy is so paranoid, so freaked out that he's going to invent sure. these this scar covered tissue all over this beautiful woman's body, which doesn't he finds out later mm-hmm. after she's dead that it doesn't exist. Um, so there's just stuff like that, and the paranoia just builds and builds and builds, and yeah. to the point, it's a, it's a really scary movie. I mean, I I legitimately think it's a pretty terrifying film um it's, it's also anxiety very anxiety induced oh there's no question about it man yeah. I mean, you spend most of the movie like what the fuck you know your your palms are sweating and you know i just remember you know it just like the paranoia and the anxiety build and build and build and uh where it's palpable mm-hmm. and i remember the first time i saw it how much i loved john hurd's character like yeah. oh he's gonna he's gonna help him like finally at this moment you know you, john hurd is he's gonna help him and then he can't get the he can't get the he can't get the, the the register open right, and then the shit hits the fan. He goes back to you know, he ends up sending Griffin Dunn yeah, back to his. Feel so
0: bad for the guy.
1: Unbelievable, but that's like the one I just remember. Oh, John Hurd's going to help him. That's good. <laughs> you know, I just saw Cutter's Way real quick for the first time ever. Oh man. Oh my god. Yeah. And it's like
0: John Hurd, man. I know. Why you know he should get more work. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. So well, great.
1: It's, you know he's he's a great actor. Yeah. Um. I mean, you look at some of like Heaven Help Us, which came out the same year as After Hours.
0: Right. 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 He's yeah. great in
1: that, yeah, yeah. Cutter's way obviously. One eight seven. He's phenomenal in one eight seven.
0: Have you seen Chili Scenes of Winter? Yeah,
1: he's great in that. Yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. John Hurd's the man. Right. He's he's definitely the man. But no, I mean, uh, I I love After Hours too. Yeah, I really do. Too, and and too. again, I think I could do a whole podcast. On in <laughs> in terms of style, it's a leap forward for Scorsese. Yeah, like what he did on After Hours. Uh, I don't think he would have made Goodfellas if he had not made After Hours. Mm-hmm. In terms of you know style in terms of storytelling in terms of camera work. If you look at Goodfellas, if people who've seen Goodfellas and think, "Oh my god, I can't believe how beautifully shot and edited this movie is," it wouldn't be there without after hours. He would not have made Goodfellas right. had he not made That's after hours.
0: That's why I show it to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's a difficult, uncomfortable movie to watch, but it's it's also darkly comic. Yeah.
1: Well, you were talking earlier uh, we were talking about uh, New York, New York and you were asking whether it's um essential uh, I think After Hours is yes. and, and obviously I do since it's my favorite <laughs> Well, clearly clearly, yeah. but, I, but just for the reasons that we were just talking sure, about yeah. if you want to see where you know the, the, this visual uh, this really confidence this mm-hmm. a, in, astounding creativity and confidence yeah. visually and storytelling wise comes from you need to see After Hours because that's the one that's where it all in, in terms of that kind of mise en scene and that kind of visual element right. it starts with After Hours and if and I know a lot of people still haven't seen it. It's it wasn't it wasn't popular at the at the box office. Certainly didn't make a lot of money at the box office. But yeah. um, but that's that's an essential movie.
0: Um, I have no qualms with uh, skipping over the color of money. <laughs> okay, a movie I like, by the way. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, I like it fine. Um, you know, so obviously we should touch upon Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, very briefly here. Yeah, because um, you know the first time I saw this, it just really. Got to me at the end r- emotionally mm-hmm. in a way that I, I was kind of blindsided by, um, you know, just after he ex- you know exclaims it is accomplished mm-hmm. and the the film projection sort of burns white and this yep. the movie flickers across the screen. I, I I mean I can see I can see some criticisms with you know casting casting yeah Harvey Keitel, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think Willem Dafoe is amazing in this movie yeah. in every way um, and it just. You know, I know there's a, a lot of controversy surrounding this movie at the time, but it really reaffirms faith.
1: Oh, yeah. You know? No, no, no. It's, and again, you know, as we were talking about before, this is a guy who uh, was going to go into the priesthood at one point. Um, and, you know, being an Italian, being an Italian-American, uh, Catholic Italian-American, he clearly was, you know, there was he grew up in a very religious family. Um, and the images of the Catholic Church are in all of his movies, all of them, there's a, there is there is there is always a spiritual or religious subtext mm-hmm. to every single movie that Scorsese's made. Absolutely, um, and it seems like he's a natural choice to make this movie. And it was Barbara Hershey on the set of Boxcar Bertha who oh, gave like, him the that's book. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he costume. tried
0: and he tried to make it what before After Hours. It, it, yeah. yeah.
1: At, at one point, Gear was Richard Gear was was attached to it. Hmm um Interesting. he was he was gear was supposed to play christ and scorsese was attached to it and then for a while scorsese wasn't attached to it. this the, the movie went through the book went through many different directors and screenwriters until you know the obvious choice was schrader and yeah <laughs> and scorsese um i happen to love last temptation i think it's great and i don't you know i know that uh, some of the casting including harvey Keitel, a lot of people have issues with it doesn't bother me because i think i you know i think i think Keitel is very good in the movie um I just think it's it's a it's a real challenging film, Mm -hmm. and like you said, it's a it's it's all about
0: surreal moments too that are just like blindsiding you. Yeah,
1: but it's it's all about spiritualism. Yeah, Um, and it's you know there were a lot of protests when the movie came out. Um, You know, televangelists were saying that 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 you know there were protests. There were people picketing outside. When I saw it, I saw it at the screening room first, and then Mm -hmm. I saw it at the Biograph. They opened the biograph, oh, and there were protesters outside on, on the Friday that the film opened, hmm. and I had already seen it.
0: And I'm sure they haven't seen it. <laughs> no, many people
1: didn't. Yeah. And then um, the, the weird thing is that a lot of people who were protesting the movie and didn't, you know, were like it shouldn't be made, eventually saw it and said, "Oh, this is made from a guy who clearly believes in Christ and yeah. clearly believes in the redemption." Um, and it is a, it's a, you know, like the end of the movie, uh, it 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 confirms, you know, like people are like, oh, you know, you shouldn't show Christ uh coming down off the cross and 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 uh, you know having this regular life and mm-hmm. all this other stuff and that's what people were you know like of Christ can't Jesus have sex, sex. Like, yeah but yeah. that but you know the point of the movie is that the final shot of that movie as you mentioned all of that stuff is for naught and yeah. he and, and Christ did what he was supposed to do right he died for our sins in the movie mm-hmm. and that is celebrated at the end of the movie big time um i do want to mention it's my favorite score of all time
0: Peter Gabriel? Peter Gabriel score. Yeah.
1: It's my favorite movie. It's my favorite movie score of all time. Um, And that's one of the, it's actually, it's actually a soundtrack that I would listen to in my car. (laughs) I know it's very weird, but I love that score. I think that score is amazing. And it adds, I think, immeasurably to the movie. Um, You know, it made a lot of money Mm -hmm. and it was because of the protests. Sure. Um, And, and, and. and And Controversy helps. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think it should be remembered with more reverence than it is. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think it is a great film. And, and I think a lot of people go, "Oh yeah, that was good," you know. Uh, well, I, but no, I, but I think it's better than that. Yeah. I think it's I think it's one of those movies that should be remembered. When you're looking back at Scorsese, uh, it should be mentioned uh, uh, more.
0: And one that I hadn't seen until recently. I don't know why, because I just vividly remember the trailer for New York stories and I just want to cover that very briefly here just because like what can you say you got Nick Nolte and the use of Procol Harum's wider shade of pale like that is one of my favorite uses of a song in anything yeah I I just like I'm floored by that I'm floored by his use of the um I think it's like the iris kind mm-hmm. of uh mm-hmm. zoom. which he
1: eventually you know used to perfection in Hugo yeah um yeah, we're gonna have to do a second part on this. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but I mean, life lessons is—I think life lessons is great. I do too. I think it's absolutely great. And again, continuing that visual style that began on on After Hours. Mm-hmm.
0: An internal conflict, of um, the artist, and again the Madonna whore yeah. kind of uh, complex going on, and you know that ending it can kind of go either way. Really, I mean, I well, mean, yeah, is he is he just going to you know continue his sort of codependence on that's, somebody
1: new? That's what I think happens, yeah. and uh, uh, I I think it's great. I think it's one of Altie's best performances. It's easily the best thing in that movie in yeah. in New York Stories of the oh yeah of the three but stories. The other two, I mean, you know, you can get rid of them as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. um, but. But that is a it's it's great and everybody in it is great too, uh, um, you know. Uh, Bishami's in it. And, oh right, and, right, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Roseanne Arquette, obviously yeah. uh, tremendous in it. But um, it's Nolte's it's Nolte's performance that really uh, mm-hmm. uh, kicks that thing into gear. Beautifully shot as well, you know, using that great uh, uh, the camera work that we were talking about earlier and the use of music, especially Harum. Um
0: Yeah, and if you want to hear great. Uh, Nolte stories. You do have to hear Keith Gordon talk about what it's like to work with him on Mother Night.
1: Oh yeah. Oh man,
0: there's some good stuff in there. I'm just, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but <laughs> it's just
1: great. No, I would imagine that would there, there would be yeah. a lot of pretty memorable stories Indeed. about working with with Nolte.
0: He does his research. Um, he's yeah. got chalkboards and whiteboards, and man. Uh, anyway, yeah. Let's. You know what? I think it would be great if part one was just everything up to Goodfellas. Okay. Cause every you know then there's everything after Goodfellas. Yeah, but, I mean then you got more masterpieces to come, but you know in my mind and I think most people would agree that Goodfellas is one of the greats. Yeah. Uh, ever. Yeah, I, I watch it and I, I don't care about the continuity errors. Um, scene for scene, it is just breathless. Um, you know, energetic filmmaking that. Uh, the the helicopter sequence might be one of my favorite moments in all of film. Just one everything the- from that point on. Well, actually, the, just the use of the Layla. Uh, outro and then everything from that point on is some of my favorite things I've ever seen in any movie
1: <sighs> I you know that sequence that you mentioned that the the helicopter, the, the helicopter yeah. that whole stir the sauce yeah. you know, that whole thing uh, maybe may the best use of music in any Scorsese movie I don't know how many, so songs many songs he squeezes in there, in there. there's there. like 15 songs <laughs> in that sequence that are squeezed in there yeah. Um, but no you know Goodfellas is a perfect movie it, you know i mean it's it, it, obviously and and um it's another one of these movies that that came out at the right time that everything was perfect um but it, like a perfect storm like raging bull uh and like raging bull it lost uh best picture oh, geez. uh to a to a movie directed by an actor like like just like raging bull raging bull lost to ordinary people yeah which by the way is a good film uh and and goodfellas lost to dances with wolves which is not and um so You know that's that's you know that became like the that became the thing, Mm -hmm. like that was like after Goodfellas it was like okay they're really just going to screw Scorsese over every year aren't they? Yeah, because it's obviously the best movie, you know it better than than Dances with Wolves. Oh, clearly, clearly, Um, and it's
0: also just uh, the best use of voiceover. I mean, like I know that. you know, an adaptation, they said, don't use voiceover, it's lazy, but uh, I just, like, the way Scorsese used it in pretty much all of his films, any of his films, where he uses voiceover, I just think it complements the film.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I... I mean, I don't think it gets better than 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 Goodfellas, yeah. and uh, it, it's it's interesting that he splits the narrative between you know like the point of view between him and Lorraine Bracco, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I find you know kind of it's suddenly. I a, think
0: that's how the book is though too. Like, yeah, at one point I haven't read the book. I haven't. I haven't, I think I just skimmed through it once, and I remember like seeing all of a sudden you get her perspective.
1: Yeah, but that always. I remember the first time I saw. Uh, Good fellas I found it jarring. I'm like, wait yeah. a minute. Uh no, wait. Okay, so now she's talking mm-hmm. and I thought it was a really interesting way to split it. But I thought it was beautifully done. Uh and you know when you know when it's that distinctive and that beautifully used, uh I'm not a fan and we'll get to this obviously part 2 or 3. <laughs> uh, Wolf of Wall Street, I'm not a fan of Wolf of Wall Street. And I'm, I'm I know that that's an unpopular thing to say, but I'm not a fan. In fact, I kind of dislike the film. Um one of the reasons I don't like it is because of the narration. Hmm. And it's, if you close your eyes while you're watching Wolf of Wall Street, the delivery, the inflection, like, yeah. the tone, everything that DiCaprio does with the voiceover sounds exactly like Leota hmm. in Goodfellas. And it drove me fucking <laughs> nuts. Um, but, I think Wolf of Wall Street's fun. <laughs> no, listen, I'm crazy. the only one. I'm, listen, man, I'm all alone on that island. I, you know, yeah. I just, I did not like it. I, I, I was with it for about a half an hour.
0: Well, I'm with you on Casino. We're going to
1: get to that eventually too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't like Casino either. Yeah,
0: uh I'm, I'm pretty cold on it.
1: I don't, I don't dislike No, I don't yeah. hate Casino. Right. Don Rickles is in it, so you yeah, can't hate course.
0: it. And Joe Bob Briggs. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So there are things in Casino that I like, but sure. it just seemed like a, it was like Goodfellas light. Mm-hmm. That's that's what yeah. it felt like to me. It, but I, I but no but frame Goodfellas one,
0: Frame One everything I just love it
1: Goodfellas yeah it's perfect yeah. and 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 uh, so many memorable moments in it so many memorable sequences um, and was the you know you think I'm
0: funny wasn't that improvised yes it was yeah
1: yeah that was improvised there was a a, a lot of stuff that was improvised and. Um, you know, like, you know, like everybody is so. If you like, you look at the cast of that, uh, that movie, there's so many good performances in it. Like, so many good, from the from the smallest roles to the biggest roles. Uh, Servino uh, is unbelievable. Yeah. Paul Servino yeah. is unbelievable in that movie. Um, you know, and it goes without saying that Pesci, you know, won the Academy Award for it, deservedly so. Mm-hmm. Um, he's great in it. And, uh, you know, De Niro is fantastic in the movie. Um, you know, he, he's got that great scene where he finds out that Joe Pesci's been whacked, where he's on the on the payphone and he finds out that Joe Pesci's been whacked. Um, I yeah, and, I get misty. No, absolutely. In and you know what's amazing about that is that Joe Pesci's character is a complete yeah, murderous exactly. scumbag, and then you feel bad. Right. Like, and and you know De Niro's a murderous scumbag too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it's it is a, it's a great movie. It's one of those movies that obviously people quote. You know, mm-hmm. it is. It's 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 an endlessly quotable. A lot film.
0: of uh, character actors went on to be in The Sopranos.
1: <laughs> I mean, yes, they did. A ton of them did. Yeah, and uh, and I mean, it's just it's a, it's an iconic movie. It's one of the greatest films ever made. Um, and I think when you. Talk about Scorsese, or when people have a conversation about Scorsese, inevitably it goes back to Goodfellas. Yeah. Which is why, like I I, I mentioned earlier, about how I I tend to get into conflicts with my friends over Taxi Driver Mm -hmm. because they're like, you're nuts. Goodfellas is the best movie he's ever made. And I can't like (laughs) argue that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, uh,
0: well, Eric had that reaction when we did our 1985 retrospective episode, and I said After Hours was the best film of 1985. I said Back and, to the Future
1: came out that year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, that was my number two. Um, but yeah, like.
1: Uh, I'm trying to remember what number one was on my list in 85. Oh, it was Lost in America was number oh,
0: one. Oh, yeah. That's my number three.
1: Yeah. Um, that was my number one.
0: Yeah. Well, when we did that, like, yeah, I think Eric had that reaction of, like, really? After Hours is your favorite Scorsese movie? And then Colin said, yeah, it's mine too.
1: Yeah, no, I understand. I, I know. Yeah, and, that's a and big it's a good year for all. Of it is. Us. It's oh yeah, clearly. Yeah. No, but it's it, it is an unusual choice, uh, as you. But you know, what, what is it's, it's his Goodfellas? Is Eric's Goodfellas? Yeah, it's I would be think her. so. Yeah. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, but, well, we have so much to talk about.
1: Still. We do. <laughs> we didn't even get. We didn't even get to any DiCaprio.
0: I know. <laughs> well, we'll do well, it sometimes, again. Then. Sometimes episodes go on to three hours, but at this point, we don't have time. Right. And why not split it up? Yeah, you know,
1: makes sense. Yeah, so it'll be pre
0: Goodfellas and post Goodfellas. I like that. Okay. I actually like that, and I think most of the listeners will agree. At the same time, I th- I think it's okay to just let people know where we stand on Scorsese. Uh, you know, in
1: terms of our, I can give you five my top. Favorites. I'll give you my top five. Yeah, you want me to it, start at five and yeah. go to one? Mm-hmm. Five is After Hours. Uh, okay. Four is Raging Bull. Three is Mean Streets. 2 is good and 1 is taxi driver. Good choice all around.
0: Number 5 is a surprise. Even for me just rewatching it recently. Number 5 is Shutter Island.
1: That's a great movie.
0: Yeah. Uh, number 4 would be Raging Bull. Number three would be Goodfellas. Number two is Taxi Driver, and number one
1: After Hours. Good, yeah. Those are good. It's nice that Shutter Islands in there. That's a that's a it's a terrific movie, man. Well,
0: we'll definitely touch on that and why I love it more and more. It's one of those endings that really just unnerves me in the right ways. Yeah. So yeah, wow, this is great, Nick. Yeah, man. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. We're not done. So that's true. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, everybody can. Check out Nick's show at WGNradio.com. I'll, of course, provide links. I think most people by now know (laughs) how much I plug your show.
1: Well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah.
0: Um, And, of course, like I said, our next official episode will be on Spike Lee with my good old friend Patrick Rapole, who was the uh, initial co-host here on the show. And, you know, it's always a delight to welcome back to the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And I think we actually share the same number one Spike Lee movie, if I'm not mistaken. I think. 25th hour? That's mine, yeah. 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 So that's going to be a great episode. I have a lot to watch for that in the next couple weeks. But stay tuned. And, of course, as always, visit DirectorsClubPodcast.com and send me an email with any questions and feedback over at DirectorsClubPodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you in two weeks. Thanks again, Nick.
1: My pleasure. All right.
0: We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Bye-bye. I love you.
2: Don't
0: paint any more religious pictures,
1: please. God be with you.
2: You know, we always called each other good fellas, Like you'd say to somebody... You're gonna like this guy, he's all right. He's a good fella, he's one of us. You understand? We were good fellas, wise guys. But Jimmy and I could never be made because we had Irish blood. Didn't even matter that my mother was Sicilian. To become a member of a crew, you've got to be 100% Italian so they can trace all your relatives back to the old country. See, it's the highest honor they can give you. It means you belong to a family and a crew. It means that nobody can fuck around with you. It also means you could fuck around with anybody just as long as they aren't also a member. It's like a license to steal. It's a license to do anything. Well, on, Tom? All right, thanks, man. Hey, how many years ago was he you was me? Nah, I'm an old man. 30 years ago. 30 years, huh? Yeah. Brings back a lot of memories. And how? Mike's Pete was a fucking pimple then, wasn't it? <laughs> Ha ha ha.